There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What's good, Internet? It's February 3rd, 2023, and you are listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 539. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and I'm joined by Ricardo Contreras. Hello. Patrick Klapik. Hello. <laughs> Renata Price. Hello. <laughs> Are we doing a? Are we doing the Seinfeld bit? Hello! Sorry, that's very old. Wow! <laughs> but it is a classic. <laughs> What's up? Hey. Huh? huh? No, Ren, you don't get that reference. That's that's, that's that, that one. That one. But Ren would have seen the the ad where they brought those guys back to remind mm, us of the good times. No, I don't think no, that's gonna no, land. No, no, that's not Patrick, gonna land. Patrick. 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 I grew up too online for me not to get shit like that. Right, like this I was is the, issue. the internet exists. <laughs> I Yeah, the internet exists and I was like hanging out with like 25 and 30 year olds when I was 12. So like all that shit did get to me. It did it did eventually pass down through cultural osmosis. See that it's beautiful that you received your heritage yeah, uh, from yeah. from from the 90s. <laughs> Anyway, video games, they're not just for kids anymore. They're an industry worth billions of dollars in annual revenue. And if you want to see what the dreamweavers of the game industry are busy spinning, then you have to get to E3 for what some folks have called Gamer Christmas. Here to tell us how the preparations are going for the biggest show in games is industry reporter Patrick Klepek. Patrick, what can we look forward to from E3 this year? Uh, so you're gonna like include this audio and like your pitch to the New York that Times. Was really, well, that was uh, really well delivered. Yeah, well, did you, you write you that were down? Clearly, was, <laughs> that, that intro was cribbed from a recent New York Times piece about video about video games. Oh, oh my god, you're right. It was fuck. No one else. Oh wow, I was the only one that picked up on that. Yeah, no, I got you. Bob. I thought that's the, I thought that's that's the bit that he was doing, but I didn't realize mm. it was verbatim. I didn't realize oh, it, it wasn't was verbatim. Like a, no, I hope it wasn't. It was because <laughs> that was off the top of my head. But the intro okay, was off. Awesome. Okay. close okay it was nice. it, you know <laughs> I was like, the line between paraphrasing t- and verbatim you were you were you the, the streams were crossing <laughs> when you said dream weavers i was like this is not verbatim I'm dream okay. weavers was not in in the piece but, but uh, i was channeling I local was. tv news right yeah, where yeah. they're gonna do well, a hit that's on about the E3. quality of the new york times uh coverage of the <laughs> video game industry is equivalent to the the local TV news. Uh, it is how they treat uh, the, the industry. Um, well, at least Washington Post got rid of all their video game reporters uh, <laughs> to make sure Christ. that everyone who's ever worked at the National Review has a job. We have a full employment program for right wing <laughs> hacks. 
Isn't uh, that more of a New York Times thing than a than a Washington Post thing? It's a Washington yeah. Post thing now too. Is it okay? Yeah, all like, right. well, like, they, like all as long as David French is getting paid, you know, then everything is is all right in the world. This uh, is every every day. I do I do check to make sure that man is still still raking it. And uh, <laughs> when I, when I, I set alarms is, to make sure my to make sure I can put out the garbage on Tuesday evenings. Rob has a yearly uh, reminder that is. Dave, how's Dave French doing? Is he still making a shit of money by being God shitty? is in his heaven. David <laughs> French is publishing in multiple <laughs> prestige outlets. Ah, uh, yes. yes. Uh, E3, uh, which uh, is now uh, uh, being produced under Read Pop. Uh, even if you're not familiar with the company Read Pop, and there really be no reason for you to be familiar with the company Read Pop. They are the company that operates a great many of the conventions that that you go to um ones we are familiar with uh in the games industry like like PAX um and now uh is kind of being made in collaboration with the the ESA who were the previous operators of uh E3 uh, the question has been as E3 makes a pivot towards being more consumer focused and uh not being uh, an industry event but keeping the name and the legacy and attempts at the weight of E3 uh, we are we are beginning to see sort of the constraints of of that for an industry that otherwise has moved on from E3, both as a function of E3 as an event having less relevance over the years, companies wanting to follow the kind of the trail that Nintendo was blazing with their own uh, like Nintendo directs. Although funnily enough, as Nintendo was blazing that trail also was one of the few companies like we love E3. We love to be here and do a press conference and have a big splashy booth as EA and Sony and, and other companies started leaving. Uh, so, so some of the first dominoes are dropping on what that show is or isn't going to be this year, um, which is that uh, Cat Bailey over at IGN, who Cat Bailey joined us for a, a truly wonderful episode uh, in which, uh, you know, uh, we discussed uh, Draft Day, the uh, quintessential Hollywood cinematic classic about the, the, the Cleveland Browns trading away a ton of draft picks and still drafting the guy that they tra- that movie is. The Sorry, analytics what? people would not like the moves that were made by that GM, Rob. Sorry, I grew up in Ohio, yep. and the Browns have been kind of ancillary to my life this mm-hmm. whole time. Mm-hmm. And and somehow this particular story has kind of evaded me uh, throughout my years. Did you just say that the Cleveland Browns um, gave away a ton of draft picks so, in order to get one of those draft picks? So back? this is the film <laughs> Draft Day is amazing because it takes place in a, like, alternate universe cleveland browns where the an old nfl family that's royalty kevin costner, kevin costner. Uh, has run the cleveland browns for years and yes the, their general manager is kevin costner now the movie acknowledges that the browns franchise the real one left the city of cleveland and what is there is an expansion team wearing the brown skin but then <laughs> yeah. they're like ah but the browns go back for forever with this family but yes over the course of this film he is basically he is he is given a quest by his his uh, team owner. You have to draft this like star quarterback from college, but right. he's giving off like fuckboy vibes. And so Kevin Costner, over the course of it's it is a it is a it's a detective story, Ren. Like this is this is the secret genius of draft day. Kevin Costner wakes up 
with a bad feeling that there is something wrong about the guy that everyone thinks is the NFL's big star. And over the course of that film, he burns down his franchise in his conviction that this guy is the wrong guy. And at the end, it's all okay because somehow he basically just makes another NFL GM give him a bunch of draft picks for no reason. He's just like, give give me your draft picks back. And that's how the movie resolves. He gets everything he wants. I appreciate that. The fictional Cleveland Browns, in a different way from the real ones, also evade all logics of, like, morality or, and causality, you know? They kind of exist uh, completely separated from oh, time know, and action. Draft Day actually does become very funny in retrospect. Darkly funny. Because, like, the big thing yeah, in Draft Day is, yeah. like, there are character issues with this. There's something about this quarterback his teammates didn't come to his birthday party in college. <laughs> right. So he must be a real That's a piece big of plot shit. Point. He's, a not, big plot he's point. not brown material. Can we do a second podcast about draft day? No, no. There's a lot of things I'll do, but I, I can't. I, I don't know. I can't. He I won't can't do watch that. that movie. He again. won't do that. A scene by scene breakdown of draft day. Like a podcast. Okay, so draft today day we're talking minute. about the we do want, make a smash uh, you know. scene. <laughs> Franklin Shaw. <laughs> Okay. I would do, I would, three. Hey, speaking ever, of making a splash, though, uh, so what is what is gonna what is gonna make the splash the three? What what is well, the show E3 going has to be? traded away uh, three picks in the E three draft of Microsoft, uh, Nintendo, and Sony. Uh, uh, they have they have they're not going to be showing up to E three. They have uh, they do not have booth space on uh, E three uh, as it is currently constructed and being organized. Um, there is some separate, you know, there's some interesting reporting that goes along some of this to kind of contextualize it. There are a number of well-sourced folks uh, connected to Nintendo that suggest. So, yeah, uh, there's some indications that Nintendo does not have a whole lot coming out between after the next Breath of the Wild. Um, and so Nintendo not showing up would not be a huge surprise. Xbox not showing up is not a huge surprise. They've been doing their own showcase. And Sony left E3 a number of years before even E3 itself was kind of fading into its currently less relevant state. But uh, it do- it does make for <laughs> interesting scheduling and planning for us as we wonder what are we doing <coughs> later this year uh, as an outlet? Uh, and then also what does E3 even mean uh, as it tries to recontextualize, recontextualize itself going forward patrick let's be a little bit fair to nintendo they could so easily release a two-part collection hd collection of games that you have to pay full price for both halves you know nintendo always has something in the bag a a real (laughs) banger you know i mean advance wars isn't even out that game is done they just been sitting on it for a year what happened out a year it's been really that exciting reveal at 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 gamer christmas (laughs) We've decided this is in good taste now. <laughs> Enjoy. Now you can have your wars. God. Those games were good, though. I'm excited to see what that actually, what the update feels like. Uh, but, like, as far as E3 goes, I, I don't know. Like, I still think it, like, it would not surprise me if come that window in, in June, if, like, there's just a million things happening around L.A. that are all different like little events and just none of it's called e3 but everyone effectively has kept the what they like like everyone still finds value in the like 
concentration of media presence and attention in the space all at one go. Right. Phil, Phil Spencer separately told IGN in an interview yeah. that they are uh, holding a showcase timed around E3 to be convenient yeah. to press. Uh, so I, I think and the Summer Games Fest will, is, takes place again the week before E3 or, or whereabouts. So th- there will be timing there. The uh, oh no! I was, I was just saying, like the the future of the game industry now is the Devolver parking lot. Of, effectively, like we we all live there now. I just think it's so beautiful. I'm just imagining the week, you know, uh, where everyone goes to goes to Los Angeles, and uh, E3 is just kind of empty in the corner. Uh, and I just think that's I just think that's beautiful, you know. <laughs> still, still, te- still, technically there, an empty convention hall surrounded by you know dozens of of smaller things i I just think it's a beautiful image to kind of contain within myself well i hope it can limp along in some fashion though because i i do like i do find some value in the idea of like there's this one big tentpole thing that is happening uh i just don't know if like e3 is actually going to remain that tentpole or, or whether it turns up like we all just continue doing things in like early mid june every year and like increasingly nobody knows why it's just like is that time of year we all go out to la for the ea north hollywood event and the and the devolver parking lot right the ea one was so far away uh, yeah oh that was not convenient <laughs> very convenient to griffith park observatory though which i did appreciate <laughs> hmm. I, i'm i'm really excited for in you know 20 years from now where people are like gamer christmas actually takes place in july despite the fact that gamer christ was born in a different part of the year because of a former event called e3 and so they you know they built the holiday around um <laughs> the extant e3 as opposed to the real birth of gamer christ well once anti-pope jeff Keeley uh created <laughs> uh like like so now that we have an orthodox uh, gamer Christmas calendar and uh, who's the Martin Luther of video games? Yeah, it's like, in some ways, I think, uh, you know, Keeley certainly has volunteered for the position uh, in, in opposition to ESA. Uh, so. I guess, you know. E3 is sort of a a fallen tentpole, as it were, but is Halo still going strong? Uh, now, I know we had some bad news about Halo, uh, but Ren, I was wondering, what is what is the latest out of 343 Industries? So uh, following the layoffs that we discussed uh, previously, layoffs hit 343, uh, following the um, messy first two years, two years the messy first year and a half of uh, Halo Infinite. Um, The company was hit with layoffs and now have quietly announced that they will be switching to the Unreal Engine uh, as opposed to what 343 and Bungie have done with Halo since its inception, which was to use a bespoke engine. Um, Since Combat Evolved, they used what was called the Blam Engine. not the manga, uh, but it is very good. You should read it. Um, and then that eventually has morphed into a couple of different engines over time, which is just tacking on more shit to the original framework. Um, and like, you know, it, it feels like a surprisingly big shift because, I mean, if Halo is known for one thing, it is known for like a very particular like physics modeling, right? Like the the sandbox of Halo is built around a very particular game feel. 
uh, and that game feel is to some degree the product of um, you know the engine that they built it in and over the course of you know decades. And the weird thing about the switch to Unreal is that the most recent version of the engine Slipstream was built explicitly for Halo Infinite, uh, and two years ago. Uh, began development in about 2015 and then worked through 2018 and then was used for Halo Infinite. And so it's a pretty much brand new engine that from the outside um, seems to work okay. Uh, and so why they're switching to Unreal uh, is a bit of a mystery. And additionally, uh, they announced that uh, their weird Halo Battle Royale game, uh, which was uh, code, which is still under a code name, uh, is going to be morphing <clears throat> into some other currently yet to be determined thing uh, that is not a battle royale. They've just said we're going in slightly different directions uh, and have not expounded upon it. So things over at three four three sound bad. Yeah, none of that. None of that sounds. I, I mean, you know, who knows how it all plays out? Certainly the party line has been oh we're you know our commitment is 100 percent to to halo uh you know the you know it's, it's got a bright future here but at the same time like all of this sort of screams curtailed uh in investment in some ways now i don't know what to make of the 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 engine thing like it certainly seems like i do not understand game engines at all 100 percent. like this is me like putting my hand up like I don't know what they do. I'm still like Unreal games look the same because, you know, I think back to like Unreal 3 or something. And, I, and I'm like, this is, you know, that's that's an Unreal game. And, and it used to be true. It's not look. so much true anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But even I've heard people even argue that wasn't even necessarily true. It's just like there were certain presets that people didn't mess with. But like you can just make engines sort of dance on their head uh, in, in general. But like I have heard some things and, and like read some things that like UE5 is sort of a different beast in terms of like it, like <clears throat> uh, current and like next gen engines uh, for, for what well, it's and like also the knock on the real previously was can it handle larger open world games and that appear the, the, the one of the things I've been saying about UE5 is that it can and like the scope of games will not be a limiting factor in what it can do. So, yeah, I mean, like I could I could see it being a situation where they built a they built an engine that was like fine and viable for the platform that Infinite was supposed to be. But if you're contemplating like, OK, well, we're it turns out it's Halo Finite and we're going to contemplate what comes next. Uh, you know, we're I, I could see them coming around to it just doesn't make sense to keep sinking like technical resources into uh creating an engine that probably will still that is unlikely to be as fully featured uh and widely understood as unreal engine so it, it does just seem like there's such headwind now uh to doing proprietary engines like the, it was already getting pretty difficult to justify doing that and it really does feel like this generational transition with like the the advent of like ue5 it does feel now like anyone who was in the bespoke engine business is looking to get out of it. Uh, I will say, given that this has been the, the halo thing for a while, I, it's gotta be so fucking annoying to all of the devs who have trained with this very specific engine, pretty much exclusively. Like if you've been three, four, three for 10 years, you've used a blam or blam derivative engine for 10 years. Uh, and the switch to unreal has gotta be a miserable, um, 
has to be a that has to be a fucking nightmare. And hey, that may have impacts on the next video game they release. Well, yeah, but you know, the, this goes back a long ways. Like one argument for taking uh for for moving Unreal for right. upcoming game projects is always that it made recruitment easier, it made it easier to like get people up to speed on working on a game because Unreal is such a uh you know lingua franca of um right. of, of games so i could i could see that working out but it it also just feels like you know we, we when last we talked about this it it did just sort of seem like uh they shot infinite full of holes uh, a, a little mm-hmm. bit uh and and this this whole like back to the drawing board vibe is i don't know it certainly it certainly kind of seems disappointing because it, it it like from what you had said, Ren, it they kind of did, maybe late, but they kind of got a decent game across the finish line. Like Infinite was becoming a better and better version of itself, and now it kind of feels like the project's a little bit gut shot. Yeah, I mean, Infinite came out in a pretty weird state, um, and a lot of the things that people didn't like about it were just things that were obviously tacked on in in you know afterwards the game's progression system the the specific events that they did uh fucking awful um the world war one uh themed armor uh halo spartan armor uh is uh, crazy and also (laughs) bad to look at um and so like just a bunch of weird decisions being applied to what is a really competent framework uh that they made and then that is only gotten more competent with the release of forge um, or player side forge. I believe the thing I'm about to say is correct that forge is basically just a slightly stripped vert down version of the map building tools that devs use, um, or is a, is a, is a slightly stripped down version. Uh, and so, you know, forge is out and people have been doing wild stuff with it. And it's basically completely revitalized that game's community. Um, and so, this feels really weird uh, to be doing this now after they did finish the ground. Hey, they finished the groundwork. Uh, and instead of building on the foundation that they promised they would build on, uh, they're instead going to do um, a secret third thing uh, that no one's quite sure of. It um, Yeah, it's it it has to, you know, layoffs all, all, all like layoffs are always, always shit. But there is a little bit of a vibe of like, Congratulations on completing the Lord's castle. Now for the final step, you'll be entombed within its walls. <laughs> you you will defend him <laughs> to your death. It seems like it must be demoralizing at 343. Like God. I don't you you can't look at this and go, we made it to the end of the journey. Congrats everyone. High fives all around. Now that it's any you know individual members fault. This is clearly a management oversight issue mm-hmm. that has led the studio to this point, but I don't know. None of these headlines suggest this is a cool place to work. Shipping the game couldn't have been fun. Like the the whole state of the game, I think we heard about that. That seems like it sucked. And then we know very, very well, like this is widely talked about in the industry to increasing degree. Like, hell, you can have a good game out there and people are in your grill, like publicly, just about like the state of the game and like what you are or aren't doing. Infinite for like two years being like hey that's me i work i work on halo infinite uh let's let's see what let's see how the communities it's like that scene in um mythic quest where they go and talk to the community manager in the basement and like they pitch kids on like hey maybe someday you'd want to be a community manager and she screams at them don't no 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 one should do this like it kind of seems like 
343 was plunged into that world, uh, both like before shipping and then dealing with the fall of that release. And, and it's and it's so frustrating because I cannot emphasize enough like the game they made is probably the most engaging and like fun, like first person shooter since Titanfall 2. Like it is it is just straight up, I think, one of the better playing games since Titanfall 2. The grappling hook fucking rules. They did it like they did a good thing. Sadly, both games got fucked. Yeah. Speaking of Titanfall uh, and bright futures, Patrick. What can you tell us about the future of Titanfall and Apex Legends? <laughs> well, Apex Legends seems fine. Uh, Apex Legends Mobile, maybe not so much. Uh, yeah, in addition to stopping a battlefield and Apex Legends uh, mobile versions, uh, Jason Schreier of Bloomberg, who also did the reporting on 343, uh, reported that quietly 50 employees who are working on a single-player Apex Legends Titanfall game uh, that that project has been canceled, uh, and uh, those employees are will hopefully be shuttled to other projects. One thing to note that I had not realized: this project has been hinted at for a little while. It was described kind of publicly as a movement-based first-person shooter that Respawn was working on alongside their Star Wars project that still remains unannounced. The person leading that left the company, and so. EA is a bad steward like Dead Space (laughs) playing that like there is ample evidence that EA under Andrew Wilson has only existed to produce ultimate team profits and the rest of the company has withered Dragon Age Mass Effect Battlefield like the need for speed like the corpses under Andrew Wilson are extensive in terms of franchises that should be titans and essentially don't exist and the fact that Respawn has managed to kick along um, despite the EA also undercutting Titanfall as a franchise is kind of remarkable. Um, but I think this could be a case in which, yes, EA, not very good at incubating uh, projects, franchises, studios. Also, the creative lead of this le- game left, and that may have just undermined its ability to find an identity going forward. Yeah, it's just, if if any studio at EA should be given a blank check at this point. It should be Respawn, given that they have a pretty firm only bangers track record of the last, like, decade. And the fact that, like, it's just it's just astounding. As a Titanfall stan, I'm, I'm wounded. Well, but the, I think part of it is, I, I can imagine from EA's perspective, they got their fingers burned twice with Titanfall. Um, and I don't know, like, I don't know how in the end of uh, fallen order did um it did well oh yeah like they they they, you know uh it's not a live service game but in terms of what those games are budgeted at that game did really well that game's sequel was in development almost immediately and it it turned profit uh oh actually you know patrick make a good point though this also came at the tail end of like an exclusive licensed star wars games exclusivity to they ruined it to star wars yeah they fucked Something it up nobody's Disney had said. since lucas arts it, it's just it's it's shocking that like ea kind of sat there doing nothing with it with it they were like uh let's try some battlefronts and see if that makes a billion dollars and if it doesn't uh i guess we just have don't have much interest in star wars uh until uh, until we get some fallen order so you're right like it it does seem like uh it is a it, it is a tough place to actually get games out the door my understanding was like even apex legends was kind of a 
Secret Skunk Works project. It was a small team that sort of kicked this off. Uh, it was that was flying under the radar. So yeah, it's like the minute E3 corporate can get eyes on something, it again like you start. It seems that like you encounter a lot of resistance uh, to to doing anything that's in particular anything that might have a little whiff of a single player a single player to it or like a completable narrative yeah it's a it's a weird publisher and again i think if ultimate team didn't exist andrew wilson probably is not running that company because the track record is bad <laughs> hey what is yeah. what is the what what is ultimate team i'm losing my mind oh so that's uh, that's their thing in every sports game uh it's like oh their little their little yeah. trading cards that you can build up with like all the sports greatest stars from across right, the years yeah. and you play it like partly is it's you know it's fun to collect uh like hall of famers and legends and then you also like play your ultimate team online matches with other people uh and then of course you just the whole loot box of, thing yes, right like, right. like it, is, it is the quintessential right. infinite money thing. they 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 found their infinite money machine and they're like a oh, damn yeah uh so I think we'll leave the news there for now, but you know, I could use something that's a little more, a little more uplifting, some, some good vibes. Uh, Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about this interview people are going here after the break? Uh, yeah, I uh, was very uh, fortunate to be able to talk to uh, John Johannes, the uh, creative director on hi-fi rush, uh, the uh, excellent shadow dropped uh cell shaded anime looking jet set radio uh, inspired, uh, music rhythm action game uh, on Game Pass, uh, and uh, we had a. a <laughs> if you listen to the Dead Space stream that Rob and I did, uh, I, I finally get to the the bottom of why would a video game in 2023 advertise itself as having Zwan on the soundtrack? And so, if you'd <laughs> like to know the answer to that, the answers are are held within this interview. <laughs> Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining this special interlude into Waypoint Radio. Uh, as you know, lately, we've been uh, lucky enough to be inviting some guests to come through in between all of our ramblings. And I am very uh, happy and lucky to have uh, clawed away a little bit of time, both for my two children, who hopefully will remain upstairs with my friends who are watching them. But that is an ever encroaching threat uh, on this discussion. Uh, but <laughs> hopefully it'll go just fine. Uh, for me and uh, Mr. John Johannes, the game director of Hi-Fi Rush, the new Shadow Dropped. I don't know where that phrase come from. I feel like it just appeared into the universe and we have just accepted it as uh, <laughs> describing how we do things these days. Thanks uh, for joining me and congrats on the surprise launch of Hi-Fi Rush. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm uh, happy to be here. And you're completely right. I forgot. Don't know where the first time I heard the word shadow drop was, but now it's become <laughs> part of the, the zeitgeist, I guess. Yeah, it has become part of the lexicon. I, I believe um, last I saw, and this is me just plucking a forum post and just taking it as truth, which is definitely, you know, what you should do on the Internet. But I think the folks over at Easy Allies, I want to say that one of the last I saw was someone they had coined it and then it just became everyone just looked around and went, yeah. That's the term. We're good. We're good with this one. Um, it sounds like something marketing should have come up with. Though, it does. It does. It does. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I wanted to start this conversation off by forgiving you for not making The Evil Within 3. I am constantly going around shaking people that they should play The Evil Within 2. It is one of my 
all-time favorite uh, survival horror games. I think it's, like, deeply underrated. And so when I saw uh, that uh, when this game was revealed, and it was revealed this was the game you were working on, because in my head canon, it's like, oh, he's just cranking away at Evil Within 3. It's going to be so good, so cool, so many things to build on. And then when, when this was announced, it's interesting because there are two uh, creatures that live inside me. One is the person that loves survival horror games, and then the other is the one that imported, the first imports they were doing was of Dance Dance Revolution for music games. And so I was like, well, I will forgive him for not announcing Evil Within 3 because what he did was announce the, like, the other type of game that I'm deeply in love with, which is anything that involves incorporating music, music rhythm into games. And so thus Hi-Fi Rush uh, appears and uh, has also taken, taken my heart in the hours I've spent with it so far. Uh, well, I'm glad you liked Evil Within 2. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry to half disappoint you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope the other half was, again, pleasantly surprised and enjoyed their time with the game. I don't know if you finished it or you're still playing through it. Or I'm two, I'm two stages in, and it's the sort of thing where I, I'm, I'm trying to pace myself on it because I am enjoying it that much. And so uh, I'm, I'm sure I will continue to enjoy it. But it is the kind of one I was like, you know what? Every couple of days, just a little treat. You get to play another level of Hi-Fi Rush. And then I'll, 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 I'm not like sprinting towards a review deadline, which is sometimes how that stuff works. And so here I just get to kind of enjoy it like, <laughs> like a normal person. Yeah, I mean... It really should be taken at your own pace. Uh, we specifically broke it up, and you probably saw there's like a hideout thing in between the levels. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's that's something we learned from you within too. It's like you can have like these like climactic things, but then you have to have some downtime, right? So um, you know, take as long as you want. I mean, I always think it's maybe maybe a little bit tricky to come back to an action game after a while because you're like, what were the buttons again? <laughs> um, but uh, I like to think it only ke- just keeps getting better at that game. Uh, the game, but oh, the game, Hi-Fi Rush, yeah. So, uh, so I'm happy. I'm looking forward to what you think of when you play it to the end. So, are there are there other lessons that maybe are not as apparent right off the bat from going from Evil Within to to a Hi-Fi Rush, like like design lessons, things that transferred over to this that maybe aren't apparent right on the surface? Um, I think uh, what happened with Basically, the the way that the development started helped maybe define how complete a package is or how I, I noticed a lot of people saying how polished it is or how like the vision is like so clear. Um, for example, with the Evil Within 2, when we finished up all the DLCs on the Evil Within 1, we went straight into it. So we had like a full team, had to get hit the ground running with like a lot of people. Um, but when we finished the Evil Within 2, um, we knew that Ghostwire was in production in production and uh we were able to start this project with uh, a very small core team and just sort of build the fundamentals of the game and refine them and so then by the time we had more members like slowly join the team it's because we needed them to do something or we we already had that fundamental thing built and so we made sure we had that so there was no disconnect between people being like what am i actually making or what is this about Um, which can happen when you have a lot of members suddenly join a team. There's a lot of like scrambling of figuring out like what, what what, we have to be doing something, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. But here we were able to really sort of plan out what it is, uh, plan out the scope um, and then go and figure out like, okay, how detailed can it be? And then we did have a lot of time to 
um, essentially polished the game in that sense as well, um, because the vision was very clear of what we wanted to do. So that helped with like all these like small details that people are picking up. Maybe even you saw in the beginning, like as the minutia that makes like everything this world like live to the music and things like that. Um, so I think that was something that uh, I see as almost like necessary from like a, a game development standpoint. It's hard to just, you can't just dump a hundred people on like a project and be like, go think it out. <laughs> well, it feels like details as small as, and I didn't even notice this until it was kind of pointed out in a screenshot, even though I'd played the game for a couple hours, but like the finger snapping and even the little text that goes alongside that was like, wow, that's a, a real attention to detail that probably only comes with being able to spend an extraordinary amount of time ramping up with the game, thinking through it. Like, what are these tiny details that are going to, it's one thing to see the environment kind of like move to the beat, but that like smaller stuff that you could just as easily play the game and never pick up on. But when you do really adds to the tapestry of the, like the broader aesthetic. Yeah. And that's like a lot of sort of trial and error and these like very, very small iterations. You know, when you're working with a small team, you, Again, you think you got it and then you add another member in and they don't see that or they're like, what if you did this? So even that sort of the idle animation, the um, like the snap thing came with like the putting in the text for snap, you know, came from just watching it a while. And it's like it would be something like like, again, visit like vertically coming out to, again, emphasize it more. And then the sound team, when someone else came in, it's like, actually, it was originally like on the first and third beat of the measure. And then they're like, actually, it's more natural for it to be like on two and four, which is when you think of like of a, a natural drum beat, one that you'd like to do a kick drum. It's like that one just feels better. So then we did that. It's like it's very, very slight things. But again, they just it was like polishing things to like a, a pure like shine, essentially, um, when every member would come and just do it it wasn't like someone came it's like this is terrible you should redo it um it was like how can we make this better you know instead of just uh you know sort of just completely scrapping and rebuilding things what is your own relationship with music do you consider yourself a musician like what coming to a project like this where is your own relationship with music as you approach something in which music and rhythm are so intertwined into making it work uh i consider myself a a terrible music (laughs) so uh like i mean i grew up playing music um like i was like i played the saxophone in my symphonic band in like high school um but i also in my free time i learned how to play guitar bass drums piano and i played in bands with friends and in college i played drums in a band um and we were obviously never pros um and uh but it was very very ingrained in my life like you know obviously music is the most popular thing for anyone. You know, everyone has their own sort of perfect playlist and perfect, you know, music that they listen to. But um, to me, it was just something that's like almost like a universal appeal, no matter what it is. And even what I noticed is like with rhythm games or music games, uh, even if it's not your favorite type of music, if if the experience is good, it doesn't matter is what I kind of noticed, like even genres that I don't particularly like am super big fans of, if the experience is well done, um, it's something that is approachable to anyone, I really think. So uh, like I, I specifically grew up with sort of like I like rock music. Um, you like Zwan. You like Zwan. Yeah, Zwan. Yeah, that was, I'm, not, I'm not joking. Like that was actually like one of that was like the mood maker piece like, that, when we started the game. It just it just came to me. And I was like, I remember that song, and I'm I'm thinking of like, what can we make that's like, 
that has that vibe of just like feeling good. And it's like a weirdly like it's it's the it's the smashing pumpkin super group <laughs> like Swan Swan. It's almost like weirdly like offensively positive. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if it's possible to say that. But that, I'm like, but this is this should be it because it's all about having good time. And it's weird that you know I guess the history of the band is that it wasn't actually that great of a good time for them. But um, <laughs> for the listener, I was like, I always love that song and it just set the mood. And like, I wrote the whole script, like to that, just that song, like on repeat in the background. Wow. Um, but the, you know, like the nineties and early two thousands was like, kind of like a, there's a lot of like, like just more like positivity now. I think now is maybe a little bit more, you know, everything is kind of picked on or, or criticized a little bit more, but then there was just like, kind of everything was like, yeah, it's cool, man. Everything's dope, you know, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you want to put in 90s lingo, you know? Um, so I wanted to bring that back, definitely. Um, but as far as the music genre is concerned, like I said, like I grew up playing music, so I wanted, and playing it live, you get this sort of like visceral feeling um, or even seeing a concert live, you get this visceral feeling of being in the audience and experiencing that. And I was like, how can we convey this um, to someone who maybe has not or maybe never will experience that it's like how can we get as close as possible and games like guitar hero or you know rock band have kind of tried to simulate that experience but like if you're if you've ever played music on stage and you like nail something with like like you're you're playing that chord exactly when like the, the cymbals are smashing or something there's just like this weird sort of like energy that comes from that and that's where the idea of like okay everything just has to like land on the beat and you feel like you're part of that um which i just feel hadn't been done in this type of way before so that's that's what i just really wanted to convey it was just a very positive feeling in general you know it's a powerful feeling so yeah like it was even just recent games that i've played like metal hell singer is like metal is not my preferred genre, but pl- I, that was one of my favorite games from last year. And I thought what was really magical about it and a lot of other music games is that they can convey the, they, they can be a window into what's interesting about that style of music, even if it's not what you would listen to in your spare time. It's not what you would put on to listen to personally. And that is kind of what part of what draws me back to the genre and games that play with music and incorporate music and rhythm into their mechanics. The other side of that is like I'm I'm not a terrible musician. I can not. I'm a not a non-musician. But I've always been jealous of folks that even can get over the bridge to just being able to interact with that instrument on a, on a on a basic level. And what I've always found myself drawn to the earliest days of Guitar Freaks, like you know before Guitar Hero and all the Bamani games and leading into rock band and get a room man and like just all that stuff has always appealed to me because it's given me a window into a world that I deeply appreciate, but like I'm just never going to be the person that can put my fingers down and actually make that music happen. And those games at their best, I do think hi-fi rush is in that conversation of giving you a peek into what it's like. Cause I've actually had, I had readers um, or listeners of our podcast uh, right in after our discussion of hi-fi rush. And they're like, Dude, you understand you've internalized music theory to some degree. You just don't know it. And uh, like that's probably true, but I can't articulate it, but you know, 20 years of playing these styles of games has at some, you know, uh, instilled some core of it to me even if I can't quite get the words out about it. Yeah, and I think the the general concept of the gameplay sort of, you know, just the simple action of 
you know, what a beat is, you know, if you go to a concert and people asking you to clap your hands to the beat, like pretty much anyone can participate in that and mm-hmm. do that. Um, and so that's why we kind of still it down to basically it's fundamentals. I think for, you know, a very hardcore musician or someone who's very, very musically inclined, like would almost shy away from that probably as being as like, this is just too simplistic. It's too boring. Um, but it's almost like this sort of simple is best because there is like a deep layer that comes from the simplicity. Um, it opens up like a window for you to then experiment with like a deep thing. So um, I, I know you're just starting with the game, um, but just the simple of like, OK, there's a one beat or a two beat attack. Um, but I'm sure maybe you've you've noticed like you can you can com- you can combine those things and enemies will attack to the beat and you'll eventually get to the point where there are it, there's a much much more opportunities to play with different rhythms um, that you either have to sort of react to. There's a little bit of like a Simon says, like a call and repeat type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, then dealing with like sort of parrying attacks, attacks that need to be like, like approached in certain ways and sort of keeping that simple aspect, but adding these layers on um, allowed us for me to at least open up, not even actually the rhythm genre, but like the action genre to a wide group of audiences because i always had trouble playing games like devil may cry or bayonetta at like a high level because they're almost like frame perfect level Mm -hmm. of precision but i was like this is actually taking a step back because it's almost simplifying it in a way where we're we're telling you like where the, the combo is it's like it lands on the beat you press it to the next one you can wait a beat sometimes and that's when you press the button um so to me it was in and I, I hope people are finding this, that it's actually almost more of an accessible action game that still has the depth of an action game than than those. And that's not putting those games down because there's definitely like an element to those games that I, I always loved. But I just could never quite get those like insane combo videos that you see online <laughs> right. things like that. But with this game, like it just feels like you could do it. You can practice it because they are just kind of simple timing things, but they just look really cool. They feel good. And you get that musical payoff as well. When I was talking to a friend that was really drawn to the art style, I was like, well, maybe I'll download and check it out. But, you know, they they're like, I've had trouble with music games in the past. Like they, they to them, they described it sort of as uh, sometimes it can feel like you're you know rubbing your head and your stomach at the same time. Like and they play tons of video games, but there's something about thinking about music at the same time as engaging with other mechanics that just kind of falls apart for them. And what I thought was really interesting about Hi-Fi Rush is the level of attention, I think, paid to players that have different levels of experience with music being a part of it and kind of recognizing like, hey, it's sort of different to think about music while you're doing these things. So like the ability to hit, you know, one of the buttons to bring up a beat that is, you know, in sync in real time. So it's if you're not internalizing it, if you can't realize what's happening with the environment, look, there's just kind of a beep, 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 beep at the bottom. And I just want to kind of walk through a little bit of, I don't know, figuring out the line there of like how much you're visualizing, how much you're surfacing to the player, because it seemed like it was very important in the finished product that you can have the, a really complex layer of UI or you can reduce some of that and kind of just like figure it out through, you know, your own internal understanding of the music and the rhythm. Yeah. So early on, um, in terms of, uh, sort of that accessibility aspect, we knew that we wanted to be accessible. Um, and one of the first things that we, we wanted to try, and this was, uh, kind of what, uh, 
my my boss Mikami-san said to me early on was like, try to do it without any UI because when you see UI, you think, oh, I have to press it to that button. Mm -hmm. um, so we're like, so this was a, a tricky challenge. So we're like, how can we sort of convey as much as possible without sort of making saying, hey, press here or you're going to miss. Um, so you don't feel bad. Um, so we did a long time without any UI. And then we slowly kind of added on these accessibility options because what we we're finding is different people found different ways to um, find where that beat is. So we we thought we had like one solution where we have 808, the cat over your shoulder, just giving you the pulse. And some of the initial feedback was like, oh, I didn't even notice it was there. But then we played, had some other people there and they're like, wow, that thing like was essential. I was always looking at that and that helped me out. And I was like, okay. Um, and then, but it would be cool if like the, the thing was vertical instead of horizontal. And so we made a, a, a vertical one and then we had the UI move and everything like that. And some people didn't notice that, but then some people said, I was always looking at the health bar and that helped me out a ton. And then, but there were still people who were like, I don't know where it is. And that's when we included the accessibility option, which was kind of like a going against our principle of no UI. But we knew that, again, if we're, if we want people to enjoy it. And some people do need that. And as an optional, uh, sort of feature to include that. So it was starting with the sort of no UI and then seeing how far we can push it and then eventually going to UI. So I think maybe first game start with thinking rhythm game first, let's put all this stuff in so you know when to press the beat. For us, it was the other time. It's like, we wanna see if you can internalize as much as possible. If you're struggling, what can we do to give you help? So it was almost like really reverse engineered, but I don't know how other games did it either. Maybe they tried it the same way or they, they or from the beginning, they're just like, oh, it's a UI game, you know, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, but we didn't want it to be that because an action game, we wanted you to look at the screen. We wanted you to look at Chai, want to look at the action, the enemy attacks. Um, and we didn't want you to just focus on a meter at the bottom of the screen. That was very important. Yeah, it's one of those games where as I'm playing it, you sort of, you're, you spend a lot of time early on looking at the, the UI and trying to think about the rhythm. And there's a lot of kind of like, not quite rote memorization, but like you're spending that time building those like, that those building blocks of knowledge. And then it's always amazing when you have those moments where, oh, and I just did a bunch of sick combos and I wasn't thinking about the beat anymore. I mean, I was, but I was thinking about it in the back of my mind instead of the front of my mind. And then, well, I just thought about that. Well, now I got to think about it in the front of my mind again because I've started thinking about the fact that the beat is there. And it's just such a tricky, interesting thing with music in which I just imagine everyone's brains work a little bit different in terms of how they process that from front to back, which you must have seen, as you just said, over and over again while, while building the game out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, that's why we had to have so many alternate accessibility options. There's no like correct answer, if that makes sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, obviously, you know, people have, you know, very easy to look at the game and be struck by the aesthetic, but obviously, you know, this, uh, you know, better than anyone, like games don't look like this when they start, you know, it's a long process to get where, Hey, I can't tell the difference between the cutscene and when this went real time, except I think I can see a little anti-aliasing on the models, but that's the only indication I'm getting when we're switching modes. What does this game look like in the, when you're prototyping, like how quickly is the visual identity which for people looking at the finish thing feels inseparable from what it is but obviously there's a journey to get to that point 
Yeah. So obviously it started as a gray box, right? We didn't, we specifically didn't have any graphics in the beginning. We said it has to survive on gameplay alone. Um, so a lot of games get caught up trying to show off that visual aspect. But once we kind of got that concept down of the, just the general fighting to the music, we then went to the art direction side and we said, okay, we're going to do this thing that we haven't done before in the studio. No one had experience with cell shading. Um, including the environment artists and character artists as well. We just sort of dove in headfirst into this kind of like unknown territory. And we, uh, our initial concept art was basically like, um, was literally this, the first stage, like when you're on that rooftop. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was like, whatever we do, we need it to look exactly like this. Um, we almost want it to be like indistinguishable from like, is that a screenshot or did someone draw that? Um, and of course you can go and you can find, you know, some polygons and, and things like that. And I'm sure that's something that could be improved with tech. You can make you know, <laughs> a, a, a 200 million polygon version of Chai that has like, no, that's like the smoothest version possible or something like that. But um, we knew that it had to have this, this modernization of that style that we all kind of remembered. Like when you think of the Jet Set Radio or Beautiful Joe or Okami, like at the time, like you felt like you never saw something like that. Mm -hmm. Like that was state of the art and games obviously shifting to realistic visuals. um, And, uh, and so maybe some indie games have, have taken that approach in some ways, but um, you know, they didn't maybe have the the budget or the the manpower to take that to you know that sort of i know people are calling this double a but to us it's it's essentially like a triple a version of that because um the amount of uh manpower that went into it um at that quality level and uh so that was really important and we just kept refining that but we actually got that image very strong in the beginning. Like I said, we had an art and it was just basically like we would hold the picture over the screen and it had to look like that. And we knew we had it when someone who was working on Ghostwire came over to, was walking by the computers and he was just looking at it. He's like, this is some cool concept art. And I was like, no, this is the game. And I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 okay, pan over like, to the documentary office style camera. Like we did it. <laughs> yeah. Dude, yeah. No. Yeah. It was like, it was like, Holy crap. Okay. I guess we, yeah, we're on the right track and it just improved from there. So the final product, yeah, it was just polishing, polishing, polishing. Um, but I think it looks amazing. Even working on it for five years, every time I see a video of it, I just, just watch it because it, it looks fun. And that was probably the, the most important thing. Like it need to, it needed to look fun. Like when you looked at a game of that era. Um, and I guess uh, sort of on a uh, just on a final note, um, you know, it, did you also have a long history with like music rhythm games in the, in the same way? Or like, is that something that stretches back really far into your own personal gaming history prior to working on one? Like, are there are there any of those that, that kind of lineage that sneaks its way into here uh, in any way? Well, I definitely grew up playing any game that has like rhythm, like I think probably the first one that, you know, like it realistically played was something like Prappa the Rapper or something yeah. like that. As like, obviously most people's entry point to like a sort of rhythm genre game. But over the years, like there's been so many variations on it. You know, if you think about there's like a musical experience games, which are more like kind of like Res or, or Luminous or something like that, or even like smaller games, I think I 
there's a game like Dyad. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Came out. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's like, again, it's hard to say it's like a rhythm game, but it's like a musical experience game. Um, but there wasn't quite something that fit in this this zone that I was just looking for. And that's, I think, where, where we tried to just basically hit. But I grew up, yeah, as, as someone who plays music, it's like obviously I wanted to play any game that incorporated music into it as well, so... Yeah. Sayonara Wild Hearts was also one of my favorites in the last couple of years. The notion of like an interactive pop concept album was like delightful to me. Again, I think there's a lot of possibility in the genre. So there's tons of ways to do it. Uh, Absolutely. Well, uh, John, thanks so much for your time. Uh, Thanks so much for the game. It's a delight. I'm excited to play more and congrats to the team on uh, a job well done. It's a it's it's an excellent piece of work. Thank you so much. Yeah, I can't wait to hear what you think of the whole thing. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And we're back. Uh, and it occurs to me I could have thought this segue through a little bit better because after the good vibes of Hi-Fi Rush and trying to you know draw a line under all that bummer news from the first segment, we're talking about a game called Nader. Nadir? I've just heard it both ways, but <laughs> either way, uh, not not an optimistic title. Uh, the, a grim dark deck builder. There we go. The subtitles subtitle. really where it hits. You know, <laughs> Nadir. All right, a grim dark deck builder. Well, now now you've made it clear what your whole vibe is. Um, yeah. So uh, Nadir, a grim dark deck builder, has been in early access for a grip, uh, but is officially launching um, soon. And I I've got code for, and I've been I'm putting some time into it. It is one of the most clever uh, deck builders I've played in, I would say, a few years. Um, The basic premise is that you are one of three characters uh, going on a journey through hell um, to, you know, get to, um, I believe, trying to trying to get your way out of hell. Uh, The first player character uh, is uh, 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 Jean d'Arc and... um, she is, uh, yeah, basically the, the, the game's pitch is that there was a clerical error in hell. And so Joan of Arc was sent to hell accidentally and now has to fight her way out. Um, and so, um, the game's basic like combat is built around, um, standard roguelike, roguelike deck building where there are two colors of card. There are blue cards and there are red cards. Uh, and each card has both. Uh, there's like blue versions and red versions. Um, and then enemies have three abilities of their own, which are called reactions. 
uh, and then basically whenever you use uh, of their own color, right? And whenever you use a card of a given color, it fills up the reaction bar. And once the reaction bar gets filled up, the enemy does the thing it says on their reaction. Uh, and then it flips the card over to the other color. Uh, and so all of your cards are basically built around choosing what <clears throat> you want your enemy to hit you with. Uh, and trying to build combos of getting enough cards of the enemies to be the same color that you can use your really powerful abilities that require like three enemy, three blue enemy cards to land a hit. Okay. Hmm. Um, and it works really well. It's it's really fucking cool, actually. Um, it has like the standard roguelike deck builder. Um, verbs and adjectives right you have rage which at this point has become like almost a universal in the genre where rage refers to literal bonus attack so you know if you have two rage you get two extra damage on whatever your ability is um and and all the standard stuff but it's all put into this framework where you are like constantly dancing between um these different colors and trying to build combos by manipulating your enemies attacks uh, and abilities uh, to do this like really cool setup process. Um, it's it's one of the most inventive things I've seen in a minute. The art style also like it looks really stylish. Um, yes. Well, it- yes. Mm-hmm. The art is very pretty. If you are looking for uh, uh, detailed animations, they are not to be found here. Uh, <laughs> if you are looking for like meaningful endings to combats not to be found here. There is not like a final, there's not like a good, you know, slay the spire is like a good final hit Yeah. or like you smash and then they're gone. Right. This just cuts to the victory screen. Once the enemy reaches zero health. Well, maybe that'll be a final release thing. Uh, the, the, maybe those little enhancements, those little coutrements will, will, will show up later. M- maybe. It doesn't feel like there's even like space like like affordances in the in the design for it. Oh, I think there might be affordances in the design. It's just that um, I believe I am playing the post early access version. Ah. Uh. Um, but like here, I'm I I can pull, I can lift it up so you can see what I I was talking about. See that how there are multiple. Mm. Oh cards. dear, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh right, right, right. So it. It's it's really sick. Like I, I I don't know if it's a good roguelike deck builder in terms of the decks are interesting, um, or the like the things that the games are doing. The game is doing on a, on like a card basis are that cool. But the framework it is built into is fucking terrific. Um, if there was another game that like had better <coughs> card mechanics, but this exact same like structure, I would lose my mind. Uh, it would it would ruin me. Um, well, that seems that seems very cool. Yeah. Um. So I am playing a game that also like is theoretically it's a final release. This is I'm talking about Ultimate Admiral again. <laughs> Ultimate Admiral Dreadnoughts. He's back on the boats. Uh, He's back on the boats, everybody. I'm back on the boats, and I feel like. This is not a like one. This game is just not remotely like finished. It kind of feels or or maybe more accurately, it is not finishable 
in that in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I start playing the huh. campaign. And the campaign is so what they prioritized is that it will be very open ended, which is a smart way to go, because the thing about like dreadnought battleships and such is that for the most part, they didn't really fight each other. Uh, the 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 era of the big gun battleship really only has like one major battle uh, where you can say like that war looked like what naval strategists and theorists like looked like. And that's Jutland um, in that was like 1916 uh somewhere in there but for the most part like a lot of these fleets were designed and built and then never really saw the action that they were intended to see so i can see where the uh an open-ended game about this the decision they make is that anything could happen right it's it's kind of like the the analogy i would use is the campaign feels a bit like it is what the campaign in the original like mountain blade feels like, but for designing battleships where it's just like a bunch of random shit keeps happening and events are generated like, Oh, these two countries are now at war. Okay. These, these two countries are friends. Now Uh, this country has provoked you and none of it really follows any rhyme or reason. So I was like playing a Spain, right? So you're kind of booked to end up in a war with the United States, theoretically fairly fairly early and it probably should be a war you you lose pretty badly but it just doesn't feel like what like you know one turn the u.s is like provoking you and trying to like lure you into war and then two turns later the u.s is like let's be friends and it just kind of feels like you're watching a roulette wheel spin and like you'll be pulled into some kind of war and you'll have a fleet but like you don't really know against who or what's going to be going on uh, and on top of that, like, it's just not that interesting a campaign game. It's got, like, a paradox envy. There's lots of, like, little events, but there's, like, nowhere near enough of them. Mm. Uh, so you just get the same notifications again and again. And so, like, the game is really, <clears throat> at its essence, and I think this is this is good, the ship building and, and building the ships and fighting the ships is really fun. It is a really, it is really good at that. It is, like... It is a sandbox game of like you build your little fleets and you put them in the little bathtub and they all like blast away at each other. That's where it's really good. And the campaign game adds some cool wrinkles like, well, the fact that you have to really prioritize like what technologies you're pursuing. Like you can't you can't cover all your bases. So it's like where you're going to be weak. And and this caught me off guard. It's a it's a cool idea um, and one that more games should do something with. It recognizes that like. After a certain point, uh, things are not really manufacturable in the way we think of that meaning. Like a battleship, no matter how many battleships a country builds, never rolls off an assembly line the way like, you know, a Ford pickup rolls off Mm -hmm. the assembly line. You can only standardize it so much. And so like I built a bunch of ships. I'm like, these seem like good designs. And then I check what I built. And they're fucked up because they fucked up the building. Like, I was like, it's like, oh, so uh, this ship is actually 400 tons overweight. Wait, s- so the character, like, so like the game was like during production, things were fucked up. Yes. Or like you or, or like you did a bad build. OK, so I did a bad build because I didn't recognize that there there's a error bar on production and so i optimized for like 
the ship can weigh this much, can carry this much. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to spec right up to that line. And in production, like I ordered uh, like four heavy cruisers. And the key thing was going to be, you know, they're going to be slower than what the Americans have and pretty much anyone has. Uh, They're going to be smaller. So my whole theory was like, they're going to be armored to shit. They're going to have the biggest guns I can have. And like, maybe they can survive if they just land a couple key shots and can like survive long enough to get those, get those hits in. And when the order was complete, I look over this, like what I built my, my fleet around were four ships that three of them were badly overweight, which meant that they were going to be slower. Their fuel consumption was going to be fucked up. And they were just like more unstable. The engines were going to be like punished the entire time. And uh, three other, like three of them also, but not the same three, had massive defects with the armaments. And so the guns that I put on them that were like going to be, well, this thing, like, you know, it, it, it's got a lot of armor. It can't really move, um, but it can it can hit hard and it's going to shoot accurately. I hover over these things. Three, three of their three of the ships have main guns that have major manufacturing defects that are going to make it hard to target accurately during battle. So there are techs you can get that like improve uh, the, that, 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 that improve uh, the reliability of your ship building. But, and I don't know if this is true, but it also kind of feels like the more you build of a ship class, you know, then you do start getting it, it kind of feels like when you if you do another production run, the error bars get smaller. And so it does kind of feel like you have a bit of incentive to be like, there is an argument to stay on an outdated platform because we're good at building them now. Have you made the RX 78-2 Gundam of battleships yet? We're like, did you have one that came off the line? Perfect. Did you have did. like of you have I one did. that came and Rob, is it a real motherfucker? Oh, it's a beast. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> See, that makes it for me. Like uh, when I you lost me with the bad politics, like bad po- po- politics system, not like, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. You lost me there. But now that I know you can make a fucked up prototype version of a theoretically extremely powerful ship and then have to be like, Okay, we have to throw all the others out, but we have one really good one, and I well, guess if we keep making them, we might be able to do something else. And this thing, Ren, mean, <laughs> oh, there's such God. a good juggling act you're playing as because, like, every year you're making significant progress, and so is everyone else. But you're making significant progress in like naval technology and design, right? And real quick, the upkeep costs of a large fleet begin to just like hammer your your budget. And so your ability to invest in and lay out cash for uh, new new ships gets gets much, much tighter. And so there's this other element of like. How do you juggle? You know, there's kind of multiple things you can do, like if you have a bunch of outdated hulls that are not really good for the original mission, you can order refits. You can be like, I'm going to take these antique uh, torpedo boats that Mm -hmm. are now too slow. They don't carry enough torpedoes. They're just not good at this anymore. Uh, now they are mine laying vessels or something. Uh, and you can sort of like order refit. So you don't, they're not a total loss. Uh, and you sort of move them into a different mission. And then you have the, like, 
some of these things refitting is really expensive and yeah. you'd probably be better off scrapping them. But once you scrap them, like, you know, it may not have been a good battleship, but it was a battleship and it was there. Uh, and these things take like years to build. So it is, you're, you're also juggling like mothballing and like refitting and then scrapping older vessels as you go. And like trying to figure out what's the risk of war imminently, you know, like what, like, is this the moment I need to have as much as possible? Or do I now, am, am I, am I actually in a place where I can like ramp down and like start building the fleet of the future? Which would all be much more like pungent and delicious if the politics had any sense of like you're in you're in a moment where like things might be about to happen. Right. And it just doesn't feel like that. And like, you know, I, I was I was playing like late into last night, kind of hoping I would get into a war and just get completely fucked up. I was kind of playing for that like it's time for the Spanish empire to just get wrecked. And like, right. I've done my best, but I am kind of curious what I'm going to do with these pieces of shit that I built. Uh, and can you I can melt get them no down. Um, yeah, you can, you can melt them down. You can scrap I, them. I was going to ask, what is the ROI on that? Like, what is yeah. the, how, how, how significant, like, are we like, are we getting parts back from those or is it mostly just like, uh, we technically scrapped the ship instead of letting it get blown it's, up. It's more, yeah, it's more like uh, it doesn't seem like it recur- returns a lot of resources, but right. it, it's more that it just gets it off your books because, again, the upkeep costs, like these things cost a fortune to maintain and crew year after year. How many people are on a boat? Uh, Like aboard, like your biggest battleships, you would have crews uh, like between 1,300 and 2,000 people. Oh uh, right. yeah, you can't sunset thirteen hundred to two thousand people. <laughs> you can't. You can't. You can't send those ships out on the bad missions. That's that's uh, too. That's too. Well, that's too many. You, like, oh, they've done it. Uh, there are some. <laughs> there are some. Like there is a wild engagement, World War One, where um, so Germany had this ill-conceived idea that we like we can have a fleet protect our overseas possessions. Uh, so they built a lot of like long-range cruisers. But they didn't have a nautical empire the way Britain did. And so it was always kind of a foregone conclusion that, like, once the war began, those guys would just be out there and stuck. Uh, But they were stuck with a few really good ships. Uh, The British sent a bunch of ships that were, like, outdated and due for scrapping to go hunt them down. And they all got killed. It was it was just a it it was just a, uh, you know, hey, go make a fight of it. And they didn't. Because the uh, German battle cruiser just like was able to basically pop them all from like insane ranges. And that was it. Like the entire the only British ship that escaped. I want to say this is I, I feel like this is true. People check me on this. It fell out of formation and missed the battle because of engine problems. But I think it emerged later that the ship's chief engineer recognized that that entire fleet was fucked. And so he sabotaged or misreported the actual state of the engine so that <laughs> they would have to fall out of formation and not be there. What Amazing. a fucking king. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, dude, that like absolute heroism, right? <laughs> yeah. Because like, you know, it's the sort of shit that like you would be executed for. Uh, but that bad, that ship being there or not was not going to make the difference. Right. Like they were and that and that. But Ren, that's kind of the problem is like at a certain point. Uh, I'm not even sure. I was like, I think these ships I built are really good. My ship could make 15 knots. 
if that's really slow. That's like one of the slowest ships in the game. So if like right. it's up against ships that are able to do like 20 knots and have bigger guns, I'll never be in a position to actually hit them. You know, it'll right. just sit there and it'll get pulverized in its armor. And so like there, there's kind of a point where, you know, it's not the thing just isn't viable uh, anymore. But it's it all feels interesting. And that's the thing, like. The process of building the sh- of specking out the ship, really fun. Seeing what your ship production like process gives you really fun really fun getting that stuff fed into some sort of like combat encounter generator is where this game is breaking down and i just don't know i I almost think you'd be better off like abstracting it completely and it's just like you'd almost be better off like having the conceit being like all right it's time for this year's bracket tournament uh for (laughs) naval warfare 1890 and let's see what everyone brings to the field because that's really what this game wants to be is like just a big battle royale of like uh colonial powers and empires uh in the you you know throughout the age of the uh, age of the dreadnought uh it begins to break down the minute it's like oh but it should be about like the real politics and geography of the space Rob, what I'm hearing is you want the F1 manager version of Ultimate Dreadnought. I do. You want I do. the well, F1 specifically manager. the motorsport manager because yes, that was yes, goofier yes, yes. and funnier. But yes, that's actually a really good. That's a good analogy. Uh, that's a terrific analogy because yes, it's like sitting there with your little like your your little blank sheet of paper and being like, "What battle fleet shall I imaginate today?" That's great. But like history kind of isn't a it's it's too narrow a tapestry for that for for that idea. Right. Like the fun part is like build the thing, put it into combat. And for the most part, like a lot of history is people building weapons that maybe don't ever see their day Um, or or maybe they do. But, you know, it's it's just as likely that they don't. Um, So that's kind of that's kind of the issue I'm having with the game. Um, the, The campaign is so, so rough. And it feels like such a, like, like a lot of parts of this game, it just does not feel fully baked. This is the other thing I'll, 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 last thing on this. For about a week, I couldn't hit anything. I was like, am I doing something wrong? Like, I just can't, my ships can't shoot anything. And then a patch came and it appeared like, it certainly seemed like they had reworked the math on ship targeting entirely and just like created a wild bonus to make mm-hmm. sure that like eventually as they are supposed to, as a ship shoots at a target again and again, it dials in the range, right? It figures out what the shot trajectory is and it can start hitting the same spot again and again. Uh, it seems like they just sort of patched in something to make sure that happens uh, because like literally three days ago, you basically had battleships putting their giant gun muscles against each other and like firing and still somehow missing. Like I would see like, it's like, this is a hundred percent shot. And it was like, my gun crews were like kicking field goals with artillery shawls between smokestacks. They were like, (laughs) we did it. We didn't hit the ship. And uh, then like yesterday, suddenly like anything with, with heavy guns and a good observation deck was just like, obliterating stuff from like three kilometers so uh it it just feels like such an ambitious game with such a good idea at the heart of it and then it also feels like it's just completely uh you know god help me at sea when it comes out to figuring out what the what the structure is uh that this thing that this thing should take 
Um, so Patrick, you have come back from uh, battling battling tech gremlins. I have. I I, I believe I believe I'm okay. <laughs> like, we'll find out in real time, and maybe. And maybe this pot, maybe this podcast doesn't. This part of the podcast doesn't exist, or you can put it at the end so people know we tried. <laughs> You're not hitching like before. It was you know. Well, I so when I when I uh, when I when I dropped out, I was like, okay, I'm gonna export the file that I did, and I'll start a new recording. And Audacity was like, I'm I don't I'm not having fun exporting this, and gave me an extremely weird error. I still exported it. I listened to it. It's fine, but it was just like. <laughs> Something's, I don't know. It was like something about a hard drive. Like it's given me once before, but that is usually a sign that like the, the computer is sick and needs to be turned it off and back on again. And so I, I think we're okay, but um, we look, will, I think we, will we just identified the exact moment. Patrick started to become an old man when it came to, when it, when it comes to technology. <laughs> oh, I think the, the computer was sick. It just needed, it's brain was tired. Yeah. It just needed a little break. <laughs> Computer needed to lay down. So Computer- it was too, it got too much 2008 dead space, uh, and it was just like you know, hey man, you pushed that me thing, really hard yesterday. That port does things to machines, <laughs> to displays. Uh, so yeah, Patrick, this has turned into uh, one of my favorite things uh, we, we've done on stream in, in a bit, uh, which is yeah, as we we alluded to, we are playing through. At this point, a lot of dead space <laughs> side by side uh, with you on the original version of the game and me playing the remake. Yeah, we kind of stumbled into this idea uh, a week or so back. We were trying to think of a way to stream the game that wasn't just play the old one, play the new one. And then Rob and I quite literally had the same idea at different times. And then Rob vocalized it, which was, what if we just ask Kato to stream both of them? And so what we landed on is playing Dead Space uh, simultaneously and kind of admiring what's happening in the game, what uh, EA Motive changed in the ensuing decade and it's been I'm shocked at how different the two are while obviously sharing the same base. Yeah, it's um, we talked a bit about this in our uh, exchange that we that we wrote up about it. Uh, but there is it is surprising the degree to which one, I just don't remember Dead Space. Like, no. but the funny thing is, I remember it as being pretty much like the remake plays and the way it feels. Like, I remember it being like, yeah, it was like dark and brooding and like, like full of like menacing shadows and everything. And in places that is true, mm-hmm. but in a lot of places it, it, it really, it really isn't. And but, it's much, it's much yeah. less of a survival horror game than I remember. It is, it is in that sandbox, right? It is a game in which you are doing inventory management. You are, uh, like the whole basic premise of the game of like shooting off the arms of enemies is like the the whole idea of like hey in uh, Resident Evil I'm gonna wait for the zombie to get real close aim my shotgun up so that I can save a bullet and hopefully I'll get the uh, the, the you know the the luck luck of the shotgun bullet that will explode the head as opposed to and I'll and I'll save a bullet in the process those elements are there but in playing them side by side it is so stark the amount of balance that EA Motive has done like I am just I am awash in health packs. And ammo and money and the precious, precious power nodes that Rob desperately loves and will do anything, including selling everything that he owns in order to acquire more of them. Who needs ammo? I just had, 
<laughs> Who needs it? Well, yeah, I don't because I and it's it, it's just striking to see a game in my in my mind's eye is like, man, I remember just barely getting by in that game. And maybe I did because it was a different era, a different style of game. Um, but I don't think that was the case. I think Dead Space was always more of an action game than we remember. Yeah. And what EA Motive smartly has done as what some of these games that are remakes or revisiting is trying to meet what your what you thought the game was at the time because context is so difficult to convey in video games. It is so you know we we learn this every time we go back to play like a game like The Thing or any any when we've done Waypoint One Ones is and this is always so interesting especially to have run around is like when you lack context what is this thing saying. What is it speaking to you? Because when you live through history, it's so different. And then to revisit it without that context or the context is I've read up about it. I've tried to understand. And this remake of Dead Space is such an interesting real-time example of what happened even just between 2008 and 2023. Um, and I just I found it endlessly fascinating to see those two play out simultaneously while we've done these streams. But... There's, there's a couple thoughts I have uh, in response to that. I think partly, and this part I think I did remember correctly. I was talking to to uh, Lewis Gordon about. It. I don't think I, I don't think this part made the the uh, article he wrote for the Ringer <laughs> the, the because he was section. like, I got to write about the lap dog. Uh, but one of the things <laughs> I talked about was like amazing. I did remember like the hook for Dead Space. Really, it is it's a shooter where you have to you have to cut off their limbs like yeah. so much of the hook is right like i don't think it's just an accident that like oh the plasma cutter why does the plasma cutter remain so powerful in that game is it just like game imbalance or is it also so fundamental to that game's identity that at no point did they want anything to like take away from you're going to use this thing you're going to chop these little these little zombies we've got other weapons because you it's a video game where you shoot we should give you some other weapons but at the end of the day the fact that people funneled towards upgrading the plasma cutter to be an, like the uber power, powerful pistol was not a bug, was a feature of the design yeah. and an extension of the necromorph visual identity. Well, and it's like and it's a shooter where and I think it's a really smart response to like especially in a single player game like anyone can make headshots like it's just not and if yeah. fa mm -hmm. failing that anyone can just pump a lot of rounds into center mass until something stops moves, moving. Dead Space's whole notion of like doing any of that so wildly inefficient compared to you got to pick these like four or five weak points to like target and bring those. Do you, down. Rob? Because I believe well, I have I have watched we'll get Rob's acne. But, but I'm talking <laughs> the old, the original version. Yes, right? absolutely, hundred like, percent. I think that's that's so much of like. I do suspect it was conceived of probably more as a shooter with a hook and then a horror wrapper on it much more than necessarily as the horror classic that it sort of grows into yeah. by reputation. And so this new game is now fully aware of like fundamentally, it's not even remembered that much as a shooter. That is not what people respond to. What they respond to is the horror. And so now the game has been sort of retuned for that. And we both sort of noted our trusty plasma cutter in my, <laughs> my first time through the, the, the remake, I've almost caught up to that, to that save uh, in our playthrough. But my first time through, I was doing the same thing where I was like, well, we know the plasma cutter is the best weapon in the game. So I'm just going to keep uh, dumping nodes into it. And then combat kept getting harder and harder because like it just didn't like some of those things were able to take basically a full clip 
and the limb would like barely come off. And it's like, wait, I gotta, I gotta knock two more of these things off because that's not the focus anymore. The focus is much more now on like, you know, maybe with the exception of the Ripper, but like a lot of other ammo gets depleted and you end up in that place where it's like, okay, my go-to strategies now don't work. and I'm entering a new area and I don't feel comfortable. I don't have much ammo at all. And I don't have the ammo I want. Does it does it feel more scrambly? Like, are you using the telekinesis to like? I'm thinking about like what it looks oh, like. Oh, Patrick changed my world with this. To like pick up a rock <laughs> and like I'm gonna hit this motherfucker with a rock and stun him, and I'm gonna I'm gonna skedaddle. We're not we're <laughs> we're not doing this. Well, the game the, the game uh, spells out a lot of its mechanics and sort of uh, expansiveness of what you can do with the kinesis and the stasis, the different ways you manipulate gravity in the game. But one that is not explicitly spelled out by the game and one that I was delighted to introduce to Rob because it is transformative in terms of how you kind of approach combat sequences. Right. Is especially because when you watch it side by side, when Rob and I encounter rooms in which it's roughly the same design, which is increasingly rare, um, even though there's a lot of overlap. But when I shoot an enemy, it's like... Pew, 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 necromorph dead. Rob is like, ah, hold, oh, and it's just, it's just been tuned to such a degree that cr- creates a lot more scarcity of ammunition. It creates a lot more stress and anxiety. And one of the things that you can do in the original, but is very crucial, I think, of the remake, especially given that ammo is much more precious, is when you slow one of them down, it's easy enough to get off one limb. And the vast majority of the enemies, right. that means they now have a very sharp talon. Right. And you can pluck that arm out of the air and then send that fucker right <laughs> into the wall uh, and, and frequently save, I mean, an entire clip of ammunition in the process. Wait, is this not how everyone plays Dead Space? It's how I've... So I play Dead Space in which I am... 95% of the time walking along with an object in front of me, whether yeah. that is an explosive canister, yeah. that is the arm of a necromorph, that is a uh, a razor-sharp fan that I have punched out of the wall. It's really not how Rob plays, and that it is slow and annoying and uh, can cramp your fingers, but the, the crucial distinction of using the enemy's own arms against it, <laughs> the first time Rob pinned a guy against the wall was a was a truly delightful yeah, no. moment it was ripping the pipes off the wall yes. and mm-hmm. impaling them like uh, the realization yeah. the game basically has like uh insta kill harpoons littered around the levels <laughs> i was like okay wait 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 i need to i need to be clocking those things now in every room so, but but they get stuck on objects I, yes, which I kind of love. Like it can go so fucking wrong with like, I'm trying to fish the thing through or worse. I grabbed the wrong thing. Like I grabbed <laughs> the thing that was next to it. And you so grabbed the garbage can. A fan blade, <laughs> I, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, this is really fascinating because we were talking about context earlier, right? The way in which yeah. like games um, have like legacy. And so, you know, when I grew up, dead space is not, just the horror game, like the horror game. Dead Space is the limb shooting and impaling game, right? Like Dead Space in my cultural and like my own personal imaginary has always been the telekinesis impaling game versus the, and I think that might be because Dead Space 2 was the first one I played. And I think that Dead Space 2 integrated that into its marketing. It embraces that. Dead Space 2 is under no illusions that it is anything more. It's the alien to aliens jump. It is. We are a straight up action game. There's jump scares, creepy designs, but 
we are going to lean all the way into the action elements of Dead Space, full-throated. In, in that case, is, is the telekinesis system, is the strength of the game. And so I guess retroactively, Dead Space has become, in my mind, the Lemon Paley game. Uh, and so it's, it's really interesting to hear that, like, that was not your approach, Rob. I think that's really neat. Well, now my approach, though, really has gotten much simpler. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the thing that is incredibly powerful in this game, because uh, it requires, like, you know, things like where things get out of hand in Dead Space, right, is when enemies close on you. And now, like, you're point blank and you just can't, right. don't you can't control the space that like the mm-hmm. entire shooting combat is really about like and sw- and switching enemies distance. is yeah or switching weapons is is cumbersome and and slow it is not a game in which like hit left d-pad you know hold uh aim and like get cooking like dead space is a game that exists at medium range long range you can't do very much short range you've made a mistake and what and once you've closed that gap the strategy uh, you're hitting that punch and hoping you can you can run away for a little bit of daylight. Except that I've gone all in on the Ripper now. <laughs> yes, unless so, unless a, g- a game about strategic dismemberment, I, lining up perfect shots. What if instead you just had a spinning disc of death yep. that you just paint with yeah. in front of you? So I sold like. It's like, honey, <laughs> you're, you're honey, sold. great news. I sold all the plasma cutter and rifle ammunition. What? And I bought these saw blades. <laughs> but it's kind of worked out because the thing is, like, one, it has a knockback effect. Right. So when these things are getting chopped up, they get staggered back. So, like, you control distance. But also, it is, like, the wildest DPS of any weapon in this game where I've just, like, I've got, I, I put two damage upgrades on it. It's duration per like uh, blade is up. And now I'm just like, I'm just chopping like I'm barely using other other weapons at this point. Rob, you, it's, it's all the, ripper in the Callisto protocol, the section in which there's just trees out of nowhere and all sorts of heavy equipment related to it. When they did, they abandoned the terraforming. You have become that character from the Callisto protocol, except in dead space. So I have a question about the Ripper because I may be misremembering. The Ripper can shoot those too, right? Yes. Shoot the saw blades out, and then you can pick them back up with telekinesis. Yes, because when you use when you when you when you use the the main functionality, it like burns it out, like it, right. it spins so hot and then disappears. But yes, the other one can be shot, and then it also has an upgrade tree in which the, it can ricochet. Um, I can't see where the fuck directions. they go. No. So, oh my God, is the eventual play? to use it until it just barely is about to burn out, fire it to secure a kill, pull it back, and then shoot it again with your telekinesis. Can you do both? Do you, I'm not sure. You, you, I you, think it has to be a, you, I think you have to trigger one or the other at the start. I'm not it, sure. It, like it, once you it. get the blade spinning up, you're going to launch it. Um, but you know, I, I need to, I haven't paid attention to that. Like maybe you can, cause it's I feel like, trying. I feel like in a panic, I have fired it. Uh, which makes me think that it was probably running because I would have had enemies there. I'll have to experiment with this and see if there's <laughs> like a more, in the lab, Rob. <laughs> uh, a more efficient. Uh, see, this is why it's so good to have like Ren contemplating and observing uh, like play styles. Because like Ren has that like lateral thought of like, hmm, this might be this might be a strategy. And sometimes it really could be. Uh, I need to see if they've left this gaping like if this if this barn door is wide open uh, to because already it's a wildly efficient weapon mm-hmm. like they are giving me saw blades 
At, okay, so I have some, one other thought. This other thought that occurred to me, Patrick. Mm. After I sold all my ammunition, <laughs> did you notice how the director kept giving me a lot of ammunition? I am wondering, mm-hmm. is the director keying on what's in your inventory? I've, I, so I, think about it, I, I think I have rules. to do a follow-up with, yeah. it is, it is, it, with, yeah. the, with the developers. It is one of the things I am so curious about because there are moments where, God, like you've had this a couple of times. Because you're playing on stream in which it's the harder game and the stream play style tends to be more aggressive and less cautious because that's just what you're going to do when you're streaming, uh, broadly speaking. There are moments – so you're you're churning through ammunition faster and you are getting hit more often. And the amount of times we're like – you fucked up a little sequence and the game's like, don't worry, bro. I got you triple health pack right here for you. And it's like, I just feel like you are getting that at a clip that is reflective of the play style. And it seems like that director is really finely tuned. The director is the down a full difficulty level. The director's like, yeah, you're, <laughs> you're on a, let's call this medium. <laughs> but I'm, I am so curious how much of that is us inferring uh, much like God, are we reading into actions that don't exist, or is this is this God's will? Uh, looking at Rob and saying, "Bless you, my son. Go forth and rip." <laughs> See, in 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 the hate in the in the haters version of Dead Space, the the Renata crafted haters version. Um, I would I the second you do this shit, Rob put an armored motherfucker out there. Just chip all your yep. blades, chip all your stupid saw blades. You <laughs> dork fuck out of here. I mean, the, the game does have counters in that regard. Yeah. They are not, uh, you know, for, uh, well, already the it, dudes who explode in the little bugs, um, like the rubber's good at killing them, but it leaves you in a bad position when the bugs come out, right? When the yeah. bugs come out, you know, there is a, uh, an enemy that you haven't hit quite yet. That is sort of a, a boss type called the hunter which is a a necromorph that regenerates infinitely um and so the that is and that and the only way to get any breathing room between you and that necromorph is to actually cut off its limbs and then it has to sort of like shake and regenerate for you know 10 15 seconds and when you're looking for a precision that's not what the ripper is there for the ripper is just a blunt <laughs> it's not quite a hammer. It's like a, a really sharp spinning hammer <laughs> and you kind of just spray it over an enemy. And it, it, especially when you up the damage, it does, it's, it does its job, but there are some enemy counters in dead space that will make the Ripper less effective. And they really start spamming that, that enemy with the big like belly that spills out the tiny little ones. And you you are just kind of screwed uh, if you try and use the Ripper uh, against that that enemy type, the the flamethrower is really like the only true counter uh, to to that one. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a blast like playing them side by side and like just sort of having the experience of seeing uh, the original and then how it's sort of been reinterpreted. Uh, just that on on its face has been really fascinating. That whole, like, that whole sequence where uh, I I was like, hey, I'm going to the next area. We're both going to the next area. I just went around a corner, got on a tram, went from essentially level two to level three. And I was like, hey, you know, checking on Rob, like, hey, how you doing? Are you, you know, because we the way we're playing it is, you know, when se- we have sequences overlap, we go through it at the same time. Um, if there are big event sequences, we'll stop and let one person pl- have that play out and then have the other person go through it so we can see that um, uh, happen uh, without being distracted between two different uh, people, you know, kind of exploring around. But there is that sequence that occurs about a third through the game where you get this big exploratory zero G sequence where you get to 
kind of like rummage through the, 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 the remains of your ship that came in that exploded. You get to see a sense of the scale of the Ishimura in a way that is really not conveyed in the original game. But you you, you know it's a big ship, but getting a chance to actually explore that and have downtime from a game that is otherwise unrelenting yeah. in uh, whispers from the dark, uh, uh, enemies coming at you. It is a game that gives you very little quarter both psychologically and mechanically. And this is like 15, 20 minutes of like, la da dee, la da da. Like, I'm going to find, I'm going to find, I'm going to find some goodies, uh, and, and kind of stock up. And that is just non existent in the original game. And it's a wonderful addition that, again, it's not to take anything away from that 2008 game. I think it is still excellent and fully playable. And, and I'm, I'm still having a good time, but I, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of a tip of the hat to, the EA Motive crew for really understanding it's not just adding sick lighting and uh, recognizing what technology can do. These are like design changes that I think are for the better um, uh, or at least make a more, a more interesting game. Mm. Well, and to your point, like it uh, from, from earlier, I think you were saying the other day as we were playing, it's in some ways it's astonishing that like dead space is not still like an ongoing juggernaut of a franchise. Right. Uh, that like it's taken this remake to sort of remind people of what it was and like sort of re- reawaken that excitement. But like it was kind of. I don't like like, I don't know, my understanding, I, I have no dog in this fight. I don't know. I never played Dead Space three, but like the way people talk about it, it's like they pointed the car at a wall and like hit the gas. It was EA meddling like that. It is it was quintessential like Dead Space comes out is critically acclaimed. Sells a little over a million copies. Doesn't it's not a huge se- it's not a huge seller. Dead Space Two comes out is critically acclaimed. Sells less than Dead Space One, if I recall correctly. Dead Space Three comes out and has co op. Um, uh, is it has some microtransaction stuff. It, it very much felt like, hey, if we're gonna let you make a third one, uh, y- you know, here's here's a corporate finger being pressed down on Dead Space Three. And there are parts of Dead Space Three I really love. They go batshit wild with the mythology if you if you're never going to play a, a dead space go go google brethren it's, it's brethren crazy. moon blood moon there's different terminology go see our dead dead space three don't look up its ending look up the ending to dead space three's dlc the bleak the bleakest shit imaginable <laughs> just just incredible where they take this series and where it never got uh, picked up on afterwards but it is definitely a series that EA did not understand what to do with and ultimately uh was responsible for sort of killing off through their own meddling i mean like the the quintessential dead space 3 thing to me is is like they built the entire game around weapon customization that was that was the that was their whole pitch and so uh, Rob, think about how you play Dead Space. Think about how you engage with Dead Space. Do you want a custom SMG? Do, do you do, no. do you want do, do you want a submachine gun, Rob? Oh, please tell me there's not actually like a submachine gun feeling thing. Oh, there's oh yeah, several. They, intru- they introduce a military like your co-op partner yeah. the, is is a like military style character, which then introduces more military style. Uh, more traditional style weapons into into dead space it's mostly traditional weapons in that third game like it is it is yeah that's not that's not what i want that's not that's not what i want and honestly like i'm not like here's the funny thing i've had a blast you know it's funny like 
horror is a great experience to share with people is not mm-hmm. necessarily co-op experience and i think that's where i'm at like i love playing dead space with, like patrick over on the screen like watching his sequence watching mine like etc uh but i don't i'm not sitting there being like oh man if only patrick and i could squat up and clear the <laughs> out. Uh, yeah, that's that seems like such a bummer. Hopefully things take a different trajectory from here. I'm curious what the future of like this Dead Space remake project ends up being. Yeah, the I am really hoping there there is a secret ending that was added to the game. Uh, we don't know what the future is, but I am hoping that that is the actual canonical like lead in to what they want to do with Dead Space 2. Because it suggests a world in which Dead Space 2 could be a remake of Dead Space 2, but one where EA Motive gets a lot more creative license to kind of branch off there. I don't know if it would necessarily break the canon. I'm not, you know, do do what you want, EA Motive. Like, that game still exists. You can go play it. But I'm hoping it allows them to use... There are some really incredible moments from Dead Space 2, but allows them to kind of go a little wilder with their... Because I, I think they've earned it. Like, the stuff they they have done on their own here suggests to me to me a team that didn't just do a coat of paint, but a team that really understands what makes dead space click. And I'd be curious if they did the same, you know, will will it keep the, will it try to be spooky, scary ammo, you know, scarcity that dead space, this, this version has, or will it go full action in the way dead space two went on its own? I don't know, but at this point I'd sort of trust this team to go do something kick ass. Cause this, this is who really we trust crazy. EA to let them actually do it. Well, I don't, I don't know if I'd go that far. I trust yeah. the team at EA Motive that built this to make an incredible follow-up. I don't know that I trust EA uh, necessarily to be a, a brand ambassador going forward. But if they allow them to make another Dead Space, I think we are in good hands. Uh, let's see here. I think, you know, with the with the interview and everything, we can probably call that a wrap on today's episode of Waypoint Radio. Uh, if you want more from Waypoint, you can follow us on Twitter at Waypoint, Facebook and YouTube, Waypoint Vice. You can follow me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Ricardo, where can people follow you? At A underscore Cotto underscore appears. Patrick. Uh, at Patrick Klopik. Ren. At Ren or Raven. You can also check out what we published on uh, waypoint.vice.com. This week, Patrick, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your article on Signalis? Uh, Yeah, I had a chance to ask some of the folks. uh, Well, not some of the folks. There are two folks uh, that worked worked on Signalis (laughs) broadly. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's, you know, people, the contractors, yada, yada. But broadly, uh, Rose Engine is, is two people. Um, I, I was kind of I was taken by a tweet thread by one of the developers that was a little confused at uh, some of the reaction people were having to the endings and the sort of play style directed endings that are, are present in Signalis and people struggling over what is a good ending? What is the true ending? What is the ending I I wanted to get? Um, and so I had a chance to ask some of the developers uh, about uh, that tension and friction. Um, and I think one of the, I'll read this one quote that I thought was uh, really uh, interesting that uh, was from uh, – uh, Yuri Stern, uh, one of the designers on the game, I asked, uh, there's a chance that players uh, get the, quote, first ending and don't continue or don't realize they can continue. Did you anticipate, you know, a scenario where a player may get what is doesn't feel like the complete ending? 
and and Yuri uh, said in response. To be honest, I didn't expect many players to even reach that ending. It's a bit of a strange habit, perhaps, but I don't finish most of the games I play, even the ones I enjoy a lot. So in a way, that ending was my way of trying to make sure people like me get to see an ending, even if they don't usually finish games. That way, they can stop if they've had enough, which is awesome. King, <laughs> That's king such shit. A, that king, is absolute such, king shit. Such a cool answer, because I do think that that, quote, ending of the game does you know it's an ending it feels like something you could turn off and it would you know you wouldn't feel cheated or or it's not it's not cliffhangery necessarily but but here's 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 the galaxy brain part of it Mm -hmm. because i'm also someone who famously doesn't finish games um if i got to if i didn't already love signalis and i got to that first ending and i and i had an ending and i saw that i could keep going I wouldn't have fucking heart. The fact that I already got one ending means I want to get the second one. Like it, it is, it is, it to me feels like an incredible act of reverse psychology. Like, damn, Yuri, you fucking got us. <laughs> I, w- I will finish your game twice. Damn. That seems, that sounds really, really cool. Uh, thanks to Waypoint Plus, we've been able to have a bunch of streams lately. We've just been telling you about our Dead Space playthrough. Uh, and Dwarf Fortressing will continue if you're listening to this and you uh, hop on Twitch, lickety split at twitch.tv slash waypoint. Uh, you might be able to see some dwarves thrive. That's all they'll be doing. Thriving. <laughs> just thrive. Simply thriving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just getting I just getting a little extra workout up and down these stairs. <laughs> up and down these stairs. Ooh, my calves are these dwarves have huge calves. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everything everything sounds like it'll be fine as long as no weird neighbors show up. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see they made seven million dollars? Congrats to those fuckers! Oh, like, damn. they've been op- they've been they've been operating in like barely scraping by. I go and read the the piece I wrote about you know uh, the, the two uh, main developers on, on Dwarf Fortress and their struggles with healthcare uh, over the years. Uh, we are not a podcast that is being like we need more millionaires, but you know what? exceptions can be made and those these two have been making something for basically free for so long they're (laughs) i i just could not be happier for for the two of them um uh there is not a game more deserving than those two getting a break uh yeah than than this i it's 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 thrilling i'm very happy i think we need more millionaires if you're a billionaires, <laughs> Rob, but, Rob uh, imagine, imagine the streams we could do if we just given access to a million dollars. Well, right? I also think, though, like, man, if I've got like a life's work and a creative field that like this is my fucking masterpiece and this one's this one's breaking through like that lightning ain't hitting twice and a million dollars <laughs> like life's long. You might need like over a lifetime you're gonna need a lot of money uh so yeah i'm i am it's it's awesome uh that, that they that they brought that in it's like sort of brought such a, a, a literal change of fortune uh let's see coming up soon well we're gonna be finding out what happens uh next on my turn uh it, i think the 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 turn now passes to our listeners we have to find a we have to yes. work collaboratively to find there'll a be a worthy poll in the night yeah, and the Monday newsletter um, in which – so that is our – that is – for the people on this call, that is your – by Monday morning, figure out which film uh, you would like to propose uh, to the audience uh, for the for the turn of the of the wheel. I uh, never saw First Night. I think I already got mine. Richard Gere, Sean Connery, Love Triangle, uh, <laughs> Arthurian drama. Ah, <laughs> uh, ah. Uh.
I guess there's a connection. There's a connection yeah. there. Yeah. First night, green night. There's not strict rules. The yeah. <laughs> we can we can get there however we get there. I I'll allow oh, it. Oh, I remember. What, I remember what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Okay. Good. I gotta I gotta figure out. Uh, uh, my, my actual my actual pick is too bleak. He, like that's my actual problem. Is like I can't propose this. What? Yes. Wait, Rob. What come is on. Rob? no? I the dude. Like I made us watch nostalgia. Yeah, but yeah, that's nost- nostalgia bleak. is uplifting <laughs> and like. The film I'm t- kicking around the the tires on is Calvary. Uh, so Calvary, um, is a so the the conceit of it, uh, it's 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 starring Brendan Gleeson. He is a priest who is told at the start of the film by one of his confessioners that his confessioner is going to murder him at the end of this, at the end of this week that his confessioner, like the member of his parish was a victim of sexual abuse in the church. And crucially, he's going to kill Gleason's priest, not because he's an abuser, but because he's a great priest. He is the like definition of a good Christian. And it is a week of just watching Brennan Gleason struggle with the knowledge of his impending, like, death and like what he intends to do when it comes and what he's going to do with this week. And you might think, well, that's already pretty bleak. No, no. There are yet worse things that happen over the course of this film, but thematically it does echo green Knight in some satisfying ways. It was also shot. I was trying to figure out what the connection was. I was like, is it because it was shot in, in Ireland? Like it's devastating, devastating film, great film, but like, (laughs) <laughs> oh man okay. oh man i'm reading i'm reading this plot summary yeah okay, don't oh, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna save it wow oh, okay jesus christ yeah there, there are there's there's a speech that i uh, who's the dude who played Littlefinger? um oh what's his face everyone knows what you mean though Littlefinger. Yeah. Aiden yeah. Gillen. um aiden gillen he gets he gets the speech that sort of is the like uh you know if God is real, how could God allow something like this to happen? He gets the speech that like, it's just the worst thing I've ever thought about or ever heard about. Um, and so it's just like, just it's, it's such a bleak film, but also like so incredibly powerful. Have I don't know. First Reformed. Uh, yeah, that one. That's a good companion piece. <laughs> <laughs> you want another bleak priest movie? <laughs> oh man. Just I really, love that movie, but that movie is just, <laughs> we run my turn into the ground. We're like, from nostalgia, we just end up like in this like shit trajectory of like just in a ditch. Let's <laughs> let's talk about characters contemplating uh like their faith against the despair of existence uh and the the overwhelming horror of the world. Did we all pick downers? I haven't shit. picked mine yet. Uh, I'll, make, <laughs> I'll, make, I'll, I'll try and I'll try and bring this plane I mean, up with my option. I've I've. I think mine is a bit of a downer, but not quite to the same degree. As yeah, I think Rob's it's a win- real downer. <laughs> it's it's a real downer, and I don't know how it, it it manages to not be able to get anywhere close to this. Jesus, Rob. I know, but like the thing is, like everyone's like going bonkers for for I, banshees, and that's true. Like, that movie that movie deserves that. Bonkers uh, for like Martin Martin banshees, my new my new minute by minute podcast about. <laughs> Wait, Rob, wait, come Rob, come here. Rob. Yeah. What what 
what if what if we found a way to to chain this into the wind that shakes the barley oh yeah <laughs> see now now we're cooking yeah, uh, so bro. now my turn just turns into like irish mm-hmm. movies mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. do you want to see killian murphy get real fucking sad oh do you want to see one of the movie. best political debates ever put to film because it's just angry leftists throwing literal bottles at each other it's so good God, it's, movie it's fucking incredible rolls. it's a great movie so yeah well we'll we'll be figuring all of that out uh soon uh, like who wa- watch me watch me shrink from this watch me we're doing this a month early st patrick's day yeah oh okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Saint Patrick's laughs> Day. Waypoints month, waypoints Irish month, Irish uh, month. Yeah, much like the foggy cliffs Fuck. of Ireland, we have chosen a series, a bleak collection of films. We're, ce- we're celebrating. We're celebrating. Oh, the Saint luck Patrick's of the Day Irish with a, with a series we're calling we Fuck Up Ireland." We can watch the D- Disney Disney Channel originally original movie, "Luck of the Irish." We can watch the Leprechaun, Jennifer Aniston's first uh, production in Hollywood. Like we're we're good to go. Yeah. Jeez. Oh, what is the? Uh, I am now sorry. Uh, so anyway, we'll figure all of that out <laughs> soon. Uh, but that like Waypoint Plus listeners get that stuff without ads. They get it a week early. That's that's great. So you can just you can just mosey on over to waypointplus.com and subscribe. The uh, other thing, Rob, that the people are moseying on over to is uh, in our march to two thousand reviews on Waypoint Radio, and we're gonna we're gonna end this one with a banger. I've said that if you if you write them, I will I will read them. Uh, folks have been helping uh, review the podcast. And like I said, I said one stars, five stars. Choose choose your fighter. People have chosen uh, is what I'll tell you. Um, from Kelsey White, please let Ren interview Jeff Vandermeer. This is how we get Waypoint, Waypoint Radio to a six-star podcast. We can make this happen. If he needs about video games, you can draw a lot of parallels between Elden Ring and his work. But I don't really care what it's about. I just need to hear them have a conversation. Uh, okay. Epic, uh, Epic Pickman 78. Waypoint Radio is the Seinfeld of games journalism, and I refuse to elaborate. Thank you. Allison Stuff, uh, best podcast for appliance reviews and crane game discussions. I always come to this podcast for the discussions of kitchen appliances, high-end audio psychoacoustics, and Japanese crane-style toy machines. That was a good arc. Remember yeah. when we tried to get, remember when we tried to get those <laughs> weird boxes? Gato. Uh, Jar Jar Binks Stan, so good. I hey. love to listen with my wife and our son. Okay. Hey, 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 wait. Hey, hey, wait. Stop. Let let Jar Jar Binks stand. Live their life with my wife and our son. Uh, Bakes writes, uh, I can't believe I'm only just listening. This group of folks has the most interesting conversations in the games podcast space. I spent the last few months going through the backlog while listening to the new stuff. Folks, it's all good. Uh, Gus Bus Bus Gus, whether you're talking about the newest game hits just right, uh, or going into excessive detail on how to optimize vintage stereo setups. Everything the Waypoint crew puts out is pure art. Andrews 3000, Waypoint is something for every gamer. Like skill-based platformers, Patrick is your man. Strategy and racing sims, Rob's got you covered. What about card games? We'll say hi to Ricardo, <laughs> a.k.a. Cotto. What about esoteric narrative indies? Ren's here for you little little weirdos. <laughs> Listen to Waypoint. It's true, I am. <laughs> Revan Rules, my favorite video game podcast since Idle Thumbs went off the air. That is maybe one of the highest compliments yeah, you could ever give this goddamn podcast. Thank you, Idle Thumbs. 
Uh, rest in peace. One of my faves as well. Now I got to know, is Robin to Lego? Does he like speed champion sets? Technic? Maybe the Jazz Trio is more up his alley? Perhaps it's only Star Wars Ultimate Collector Series for our most discerning boy. <laughs> how, about, how about the rest of the crew? Anyone get that tall neck set? <laughs> Crash down, fly, Eagles, fly. Uh, yeah, hey, good, good luck at the Super Bowl. Uh, sports will be back next week. CJ Wilkerson, hey, are you looking for an excellent video game podcast? Stop browsing those terrible iTunes podcast charts. Apple, I'm begging you for better podcast discovery, discover, discoverability features. Shout out to Pocket Cast, which is a much better podcast app. And start it's listening so to the Goat Pod Waypoint Radio. Now that five-star review is out of the way, a question for the crew. <gasps> People took advantage of this. People wow. are figuring out. They found the loophole. <laughs> no, I told them this loophole. Uh, what's your favorite trail mix? For me, it's the one that goes into the trail mix pantheon. Is hoodies, peanut butter, chocolate mix available at your local Costco retail store. I do believe at some point we had a trail mix discussion oh. that is that is scratching an itch, but I think that is pre-Ren. Ren, do you have strong trail mix thoughts? Because I believe our previous discussion was over the amount the amount of chocolate and peanut butter right. in the trail mix was was a lot of discussion. All right, I'm gonna be I'm gonna come to you in a moment of honesty, please. I, I want only savory shit in there. If you put if you put chocolate, peanut butter, my fucking trail mix. No, get that shit out of here. A, a raisin? Go fuck yourself. Oh, Is that trail mix no. anymore? You're just eating peanuts. No, I don't want. I don't need no. peanuts. Like a little bit, a little crispy. This sicko's eating Brazil nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I just love those yummy little this- crunchy little guys. This is is like, I love this giant flavorless wooden banana that comes in. It comes in my bag of flavorless trail mix. Just love a crunchy, salty snack. All those, all the crunchy, salty things in check mix, but also with a bunch of nuts next to it. I would see the problem is if you let me, if you let me go too far, if you just let me like Rob design your perfect trail mix. It's like puppy chow. With, <laughs> I know. It's just, this is what happened. We were basically roasted <laughs> peanuts. Yeah, but I'm just wanting to put chocolate and oh, oh, in the bag. And I'm like, this to me is trail mix. It's oh. Halloween. It's like fancy Halloween. And those are, there's one nut in there just to, to qualify it as trail mix. Uh, Celadon, a ship veering off course, barely held together with the picked apart. Flotsam and jetsam that have washed against this battered hall over the years. Sometimes they talk about video games. <laughs> Fofo314, thoughtful video game conversations and coverage as well. Pi313, twice a week and never too much. Waypoint, well, let's not go too far. <laughs> Pi313. Waypoint Radio is always a great listen, digging into new and old releases and keeping up with the latest gaming news. Alan P. Storm. So over the summer, the wave on a long brewing identity and career crisis started to crest, and I did what any person uh, of my particular age cohort would do. I stuck my head in the sand, got into edibles, and fell down a deep, deep, nostalgia-filled, mediocre Star Wars media hole and sought, let me click this, this is a long one, and sought a podcast to accompany me. One of those podcasts was a more civilized age, hosted in part by one Rob Zachney. This led me to Waypoint Radio, which I guess is the opposite way of how it normally goes. And I was amazed to discover a games and tech adjacent podcast that wasn't a political garbage fire. Actual discussions of labor in the games market, movie reviews that understand how it is both hilarious and very important, how much Michael Mann movies are about dudes rocking, unapologetically unapologetically left and left-leaning hosts. Usually my best hope for these sorts of podcasts is that the hosts keep their mouths shut about their video weirdo libertarian singularity views while they shill for managed web hosting. But Waypoint Radio is a safe space 
for also occasionally like Saudi Arabian. Hey, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Well, I'm reasonably certain stories of real estate maintenance. Well, aren't going to pivot into some weird crypto digital mouse glue trap scam worth a listen. You know, if it's for you pretty quickly. Well, that part is that part is definitely true. That is Alan P. Storm. What a review. Uh, we have a couple more here. Uh, uh, tibia Tibia is my favorite video game podcast. One of my faves in general. Everyone on here is great and fun and interesting. Uh, SBOX replace the Bombcast as my go-to games podcast. Thoughtful, nuanced discussion of games and news, plus wildly entertaining off-topic talk. Uh, my cool history, thought-provoking discussions about games and whatever Rob's latest interest is by very likable hosts in all seriousness. I've listened to a lot of gaming podcasts, and this is the best. Triangle Pascal, I've been listening to Waypoint Radio for four years now, and it's always wonderful. As a non-gamer, I'm always interested in learning about the world of video games. I'm sorry, that was me reacting to that review in real time. And the Waypoint team does an excellent job of not just explaining the mechanics of the game, but also why they care about it. Just as enjoyable are the off-topic discussions about food, travel, sports, life, and deeply cursed house repairs. Uh, <laughs> BTF uh, Spilk 83 I've been listening to this podcast since Election Day 2016. Whew. Austin gave the thesis for the site in a time when a lot of listeners needed it. Why talk about video games in a time when that seemed like the least important thing in the world? Waypoint has been a large part in me looking at uh, the world and asking, why do we play? And there's always an amazing answer. That is a sick. Thank you. Thank you for writing that. Uh, Gaiman, that's a. That's a sick name that you managed to secure on iTunes. Uh, over the years, Waypoint has had hosts come and go, but the one thing that has remained cons- consistent is their thoughtful and unique approach to video games and critique. Those have great chemistry and often going down some weird and wonderful tangents. There's also labor focus to their coverage as well. Uh, as unionization is taking place in the industry, Waypoint often focuses on the people behind the games. Uh, Milwaukee Adam, also a great name. I'm listening to Waypoint Radio since before it had a name. That's right, Vice Gaming's new podcast, which, fun fact... If you look us up on ACAST, which is what hosts our podcast, it is still in the header, like in the URL, nice. yeah. listed as Vice Gaming's nice. new, new podcast. We had hoped to become Vice City at one point, and legal said uh, no. Uh, and this show has consistently been the only place to hear insightful, smart, and leftist commentary on the latest video games and video game news. They also talk about a lot of dumb things, too. What's the best? Oh, question. What's the best game to play on an airplane? Please do not elaborate as to why. Um. Uh, the trivia that comes in the seat back, uh, entertainment. <laughs> so my real answer might be Slay the Spire, mm-hmm. like just. But the game I end up playing a lot on the plane is. But which movie on this in-flight seatback entertainment uh, like hard drive do I really want to watch? Oh wait, there's not enough flight left for that one. Okay, what's the uh, what's the one that I really want to watch <laughs> with the time that's left in this flight? Yeah, my favorite has to be. Ooh, how little can I get in this seat? Ooh, how little space can I take up right here? That's my favorite game to play on the plane. My favorite game to play on the plane is that I can't fall asleep on a plane unless I get myself into extremely awkward positions. And so it's just like, what can I do that is not visibly embarrassing, but also will allow me to sleep? And it usually involves like me craning my knees up a little bit in, yeah. in up against the against the, the chair in front of me. And I don't want to I don't want to interfere with the person in front of me. I'm <laughs> conscious of that. It's bad. It's why I don't sleep on planes. It's it's like so hard for me to do it. And um 
my body just doesn't. It has to be like it kind of have to get into like a sleeping position, and like I can't do that on a plane. I, I can't believe that Patrick and I had the same Marvel's Midnight Suns game on a plane at the air. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last couple, last couple here. Basic channel, uh, <laughs> the headline of this review, some freaks, thank you. A pro listed for fans of hot freaks, freaks, little guys, little freaks, management simulations, and in the case of Kato, refusal to learn management simulation. <laughs> Woo! Every time I listen, I say, where's Austin Walker? You know, he's at, he's the other podcast, but thank you for continuing to listen. <laughs> Smoon Hooch, this show rips. I will what interrupt other name. pods. To start this when it drops, great cultural commentary and banter with a few of my favorite parasocial buds. <laughs> Felix RZ, headline top three parasocial relationship of all time. I don't have anything insightful to add, so here's a fun fact. There are Costco's in Korea, and yes, they have the hot dog combo. Also, bulgogi calzones? Did I say that right? Bulgogi? Fuck. Bulgogi, yeah. Shit. What's bulgogi? Oh. I'm sorry, that's... It's it's meat. It's delicious, okay. delicious meat. Okay. <laughs> Cool. It's a specific like they they have like a specific like. Um, I think it was like shaved a, steak would be an analogy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's like the kind of thinness and texture. But that has there's a there's a I don't know what the spices are that make it taste the way it does taste when it comes out. It doesn't feel like there's sauce on it, but it does have a different. It has a sort of baked in taste that's specific to it. That sounds delicious. Uh, when I'm homesick for American cuisine, I hop on the train to Costco and return tradition. Anyways, <laughs> FCGH, uh, which I, I, I can't believe we have not had that acronym uh, sooner. It's it's delightful. And this, let's end on a high note. A one star review from PCZ. Oh, fuck. I couldn't find Headline, this Headline. Constant pseudo intellectual hipster negativity. <laughs> let's dive right into this one. I want to love this podcast. And occasionally, I still tune in, only to be reminded why I skip most episodes these days. The hosts rarely have interesting things to say and often seem more interested in coming across as intellectually enlightened while refusing to engage on good faith terms with seemingly any games that garner any kind of mainstream success. <laughs> might might have a tiny point there, actually, like, in there, like... I mean, come on, guys. You're not just cool because you only love games you think were the first to discover in early access. Now, I don't <laughs> think that one's true at all. I don't think that last bit is. I'm. This is a review about me. <laughs> this is good. Again, a review is a review. Hit me with what you got. And you know what? PCs. Thanks for tuning in to Hate Listen every once in a while. ACAST still counts that as a mark for someone listening to the podcast. And one of these days, we're going to get you. (laughs) Sorry. So so go ahead. I just want to note that I'm looking at a a list of our reviews, and I was looking at this one, uh, and I just said more episodes of Waypoint Radio. And I just want to say shout out to uh, Gooder Than You 2020, sorry, 22, who said, Love episode 42 back in 2017. <laughs> so if you're looking for a good episode of Waypoint Radio, go back to episode 42, I guess. Hold on. Uh, episode 42, Thirst of the Wild. A week from now, Nintendo will not only launch a new console, but a brand new Zelda. Won't this promise big changes for a franchise looking for new directions? Though Editor-in-Chief <clears throat> Austin Walker is technically still on vacation, he's returned to taunt. Patrick Kluppick with Breath of the Wild impressions of his hours of the game, at least <coughs> as much as Nintendo's strict embargo will let him. We also dive deep into Can't our impressions of Horizon Zero Dawn. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Another ambitious open world game that's finally arriving this week. Uh, yes, like one of favorite pieces of writings that everyone on the site was Austin's review of Breath of the Wild. So I'm not shocked that was a good episode. And Thirst of the Wild, that's a good title for a podcast <laughs> as well. Um, anyway, thanks everyone for writing in, uh, and we'll we'll keep reading those as we as we move our way to to 2000. So thanks for all of your help and in, in writing, however you write those reviews. Do the people giving one stars know that they're know that they're on the that they're helping us on the path to two thousand? Like, do they do they recognize that? Yeah, I presume this person. I but now they know we're reading it. Now they're like, mm-hmm. see, now they're yeah. motivated because yes. they're like yes. they will. So because they're gonna think they're gonna dismiss me on the podcast, but they're gonna think about that little one star review <laughs> for the next year. <laughs> so here's my shot. I'm gonna do some. I'm gonna do some psychic damage to four strangers. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid! It's the it's the making a horse watch My Little Pony of podcast reviews. <laughs> uh, and hey, you know what else you can do besides review the show and subscribe at waypointplus.com? Though that you should absolutely do that. You could also go to waypointgeneralstore.com to buy some of our fine Waypoint merch. Our theme music is by Bowen. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Learn more at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. For now, we're calling time on this week. We will talk to you again next week. Until then, fuck capitalism. Go home. FCGH. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.